Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what we should do to solve them. I'm Rob Whitland, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's guest, Tristan Harris, is likely to be known to many of you because he's been advocating for us to take the downsides generated by social media more seriously for many years, and also because he is heavily featured in the recent and very popular Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I was really sympathetic to the conclusions of the movie, uh, but not totally convinced by the arguments uh, as they were presented. And I think that's because the producers didn't leave enough room for counter-arguments and potential rebuttals to those counter-arguments. So I was excited to get to test the strength of the case that Tristan presents, as well as explore a bunch of possible concrete solutions, a topic that was almost entirely left out of the documentary. Even if you've seen The Social Dilemma, and maybe you've listened to Tristan on some other podcasts, I think the lengthy section on possible solutions is going to be uh, almost entirely novel to you. If you want to go straight to that, it's about one hour and 20 minutes into the episode, or alternatively, you can skip to the chapter called Possible Solutions in your podcasting app. Throughout the conversation, we also talk about moral panics, US politics, the influence of Facebook in the developing world, big wins that Tristan and his colleagues have had over the last five or 10 years, uh, and tips for individuals like me who've perhaps struggled with a bit of social media addiction in the past themselves. We go through all the tools that I personally use to manage that. Uh, So if you find yourself wishing that you used your laptop or phone somewhat differently, I can definitely recommend sticking around for that section. All right, without further ado, here's Tristan Harris. Today, I'm speaking with Tristan Harris. Tristan is an American computer scientist and the founder and leader of the Center for Humane Technology, a nonprofit organization that works to prevent technology contributing to internet addiction, wasted attention, political extremism, and misinformation. He's become one of the most visible voices, or I guess audible voices, questioning whether the effect that email, social media, and YouTube has is positive overall. Before starting CHD, he worked as a design ethicist at Google and studied the ethics of human persuasion at Stanford. He was most recently prominently featured in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which covered the possible harms being caused by social media and other technology products that distract us or contribute to shaping our opinions. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tristan. Absolutely. My pleasure, Rob. Good to be here. All right. So I hope to get into talking about how strong the evidence is for online services having negative effects and and how those effects might be reduced. Uh, But first, uh, starting at the big picture, what are you doing at the moment and why do you think it's uh, really important? Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons for our conversation now is this recent film, The Social Dilemma, which I think really brought these issues into the mainstream. So, you know, we, we see ourselves as a social change organization that is trying to overall change the core incentives and dangers of the way that the new digital habitats that we really are inhabiting, they're, they're not just products we use. Facebook is not just a tool or a casual you know, application. They've really come to take over the meaning-making and sense-making of entire worlds. And that's never been more true than in a COVID world where we're more isolated than ever at home. And we rely on social media to figure out, you know, is Portland a war zone right now? Is there, you know, guns and rioters everywhere or is it actually a beautiful, peaceful day? And so if there are distortions in the way that technology is is shaping the meaning making that three billion people are doing in hundreds of languages and in hundreds of countries, we ought to really know about that. And so this film, The Social Dilemma, a Netflix documentary came out on September 9th. And I think is probably the reason for one of the reasons why we're talking today. And I think many of the appropriate skepticism that some people have had of is is it a salacious uh, (laughs) overselling documentary or is it incredibly accurate and subtle in the points that it's trying to make? And my goal today would be to convince you that overall it is is very accurate in how it is describing the the mechanisms of the overall system. Uh, Just to say a couple quick words about the social dilemma. In the first 28 days, it was seen by 38 million households. 
and about 190 countries and in 30 languages. And so I really feel like it's become a kind of inconvenient truth for the tech industry. And like inconvenient truth, which, you know, failed over into some skepticism about climate science and because the, maybe the time scales were not exactly correct as to what Al Gore had predicted. But the broader trend of are the mechanisms here leading to a gradual ecological breakdown of of the environmental life support systems that we rely on. And I think the similar argument that I hope to make with, with you today is that technology really is creating a kind of climate change of culture where there are predictable interconnected effects that overall trend in directions that erode the core life support systems of a social fabric. From our trust mechanisms to the basis of our attention, our productivity, our ability to not be distracted, all of these kinds of phenomena. So I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into all of that. Okay, yeah, we'll come back to the social dilemma in just a minute. But I'm curious to know, what is the Center for Humane Technologies kind of strategy? Are you aiming to convince people in the tech companies that you'd like to, to change gears? Or are you thinking about policymakers? Or are you just trying to convince the, the public as a whole that there's an issue here that needs to be grappled with at a, at a really broad level? Yeah, so the Center for Humane Technology is a you know nonprofit vehicle that we founded to support the overall work of systems change. I mean, this might sound very abstract to people, but systems change is incredibly complex. I mean, climate change is an externality of a infinite growth-based economic system. Every time you print, you know, trillions of dollars by the Fed, you're printing IOUs for materials extraction, pollution, et cetera. So there's a direct connection between our economic system and climate change in the similar sense that there's a direct connection between the core financial incentives of technology companies and these social impacts. And so you can't just raise awareness by itself. You need to work on policy. You need to work on cultural awareness from all sides because you can't convince policymakers to do something unless there's a public that has a majority view that something needs to change. And then it's not a, you know, a conspiracy theory about these, these different problems. You need to convince mental health professionals, educators, parents, students. And so we work on full-scale systems change. I don't know if you know the work of uh, Danella Meadows, who's a systems change theorist. And she's a great essay called, I think it's the 12 leverage points to intervene in a system. And, you know, you can change the parameters of a system, the taxes, subsidies, or you can change the fundamental mindset or paradigm from which all the assumptions in that system are rested. And I think a lot of our work actually goes to that level where prior to this, and I've been working on this topic for probably close to eight or nine years now, starting a little bit before Google even uh, as a design ethicist, and really seen how one of the core things we were trying to overturn was the way they were framed as an issue. You know, is technology addictive? Yes or no. So you could approach that question with kind of clinical thresholds of, well, how do we measure addiction? Is someone really not sleeping? If they, if they have with, do they have withdrawal symptoms if they stop using the product? And that really wasn't the kind of overall framing that was accurate to the, all the phenomena that we were seeing, which include a, you know, a multitude of effects from using it for longer than you intended, getting distracted way more often, finding yourself habitually doing something that you didn't want to do, uh, finding that the things that were, let's say, negative behaviors were intertwined with core infrastructure you had to use on a daily basis. For example, many people, if you're a social media marketer, you can't go to work without decoupling from the use of these systems. So to the extent that they manipulate your use or you don't feel good when you use it, you're sort of forced to do that in the same way that you know many high school students are forced to use Facebook groups to do homework. And so what makes these systems pernicious is the fact that their overall structure is infused with the way our social fabric works. And it's no longer a question of whether I use the product or not, because a teenager who says, hey, I saw the social dilemma of the film, and I deleted my Instagram account, I don't want to use it anymore, 
they will suffer from social exclusion because all of their friends at their high school still use Instagram. And that's where sexual opportunities and homework and other thing else is still discussed. So I think that's one of the things we're going to have to look at is how is this operating at a systemic level? So to be a little bit more clear, yeah, we work on, you know, working with policymakers. We speak with former heads of state governments. We speak with, you know, people, researchers who work on the harms. And, you know, this film, it's important to note, was made over the course of three to four years. And so when we get into some of the things that it talks about, a lot of those interviews were actually filmed many years ago before people had any notion that there was a problem at all with social media. So yeah, in doing some background research uh, for this episode, I found there's a lot of supporters of your view and there's also a lot of detractors. And I guess by, by really uh, taking up the mantle in this question, becoming a figurehead for it, you've kind of uh, drawn a slight target on your head for, I guess, people who don't agree with your message. How have you found that on a, on a personal level, kind of being on these social networks and sometimes being yeah, criticized quite rudely sometimes? That's very kind of you to, to point that out. You know, one of the fun, the funny aspects of this is that part of our critique is that in the attention economy, you know, hate has a home field advantage. And the more, you know, extreme and salacious and incendiary the comment, the more likely it is rewarded. And many of our critics participate in that by saying, you know, fairly rude or, or ad hominem type things sometimes. You have to grow to a thick skin, I think, to do this work. And and what's interesting, and I wish people could see more of, is the overall trajectory over eight years, which I'm I'm, I'm hoping to get into. Because when you've been at this as long as, as we have, and you've been trying to convince people of something, you see this whole train wreck that's emerging, where you see Facebook group recommendations recommending extremism or conspiracy theories. You see YouTube having a highly partisan, highly polarizing effect, stretching back you know, for, for a decade. And so when they reduce those effects over the last two years, which they've done, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that, I think people can take our rhetoric as hyperbole because they say, well, it's, it's really not that bad in 2020 when we're, now everyone's talking about these issues. Compared to the fact that over a 10-year period when no one was talking about them, we had to yell at the top of our lungs that there was really an issue here that's led them to now make some of those changes. I will say that, you know, the core lens that, that we use to examine these effects is through the persuadability and vulnerability of the human mind. That's really my, my background. I think I would say the thing I'm most expert in. I, I, as a kid growing up, as talked about in the film, I was a magician. And magic is always is really about an asymmetry of knowledge between what the magician knows about your mind that you do not know about your mind. If you knew the thing that the magician knows about your mind, then the trick would not work. Although there's still persistent effects around attention because it actually, even if you know that I'm manipulating your attention, your attentional instincts are so strong that the magician can continually manipulate them. But I'm hoping we'll get into that. I actually have a lifelong sort of exploration of the persuadability of the human mind. I actually went into cults for several years of my life and studied how cults manipulate people. Really going into some, you'd find people who were doctors or lawyers or PhDs who were incredibly intelligent people who would get sucked into this rhetoric. It's sort of like what people say when you find these, you know, astrophysicists who are simultaneously at the top of their field, but then might be highly religious and their religious views contradict their, their knowledge of in, in physics. And that in that contradiction, their kind of core beliefs and identity tends to win. So I think, you know, these are all really interesting. I, I've studied neurolinguistic programming, a little bit of hypnosis, pickpocketing. I actually, one of my favorite experiences was going to a pickpocketing, hypnosis and magic retreat in Bali and hanging out with magicians there for, for, for weeks. So uh, anyway, that's to say, I think that when we get into this conversation, thinking about this in terms of the asymmetry of knowledge and power of technology manipulating aspects of human nature that we are not aware of in ourselves, to sort of loop it all the way back around to your question about how does it feel to be criticized, one of the vulnerabilities of the human mind is negativity bias. So Rob, if there was, you know, you made a post and you said something and you got 99 positive comments on that post and one of those comments was negative, where does your attention go? 
if you were, quote unquote, a rational actor, you'd be weighting the information 99 to 1 and really holding on to and remembering the positive information to a 99 to 1 ratio. But of course, that's not how our mind works. Not only does our mind focus on the negative information, but it holds on to and loops on that negative information because it's actually an ego attack. And I think that when we talk about not just my own experience of, you know, critiques that people may have of the social dilemma or our work, it's just to say that we're all vulnerable to this. And, you know, I, I face that, that kind of effect just like anybody else. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I used to be more bothered by that. I feel like over, well, it's maybe been a 10 or 15 year period, but gradually I think our personalities can adapt somewhat to the jungle that is social media and we can learn to maybe, well, I, I think to some extent I've learned to kind of enjoy people being uh, really vicious and, and to find it entertaining, but that has been a, a long journey. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's entirely good because then you can end up with a kind of contrarian desire where it's like you almost feed off of the negative attention. And <laughs> that's a bad in its own way. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, that's, that's very interesting. And I think that when people become accustomed to saying things that they get enough negative feedback, like you said, that they just surrender to the fact that they're living in a negativity machine, it can lead people to dig in into a politics of grievance where they actually say things just to piss off their adversaries and critics. And I, I worry that's actually one of the core effects that's driving polarization is that people actually start to become accustomed to living in a world where everything you say has context collapse because you're saying one thing in one context and there's going to be a whole bunch of other people living in a different context who say, I can't believe you said that, that's horrible. And their you know, counter critique comments are going to be rated at the top of you know, the possible comment threads that, that, that you're saying. And I, it's one of the things that I, I worry about is how that, that effect is going to play out in the long term. Let, let's push on and talk about the argument that you're making in the, in the social dilemma. What is the big picture nature of the problem you're working on? As you said, there's so many different things that are kind of interlocking that it can be a little bit hard, I think, to conceptually get a grip on exactly, yeah, what, what are all of the different failure modes that these products can have from a user's perspective or society's perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So we really look at this through the lens of if you zoom out and blur your eyes, what is the trajectory of incentives and of power dynamics and influence that are driving certain sociological trends as a result of social media's influence and impact. So again, you blur your eyes. You're not asking, you know, what is YouTube's algorithm doing in the year February 2016 versus November 2020, because you actually have a very different algorithm, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But if you zoom out and say, you know, how, how addictive is, you know, social media for teen girls, or if you zoom out and say, how distracting is email, you're going to see, you know, that change in litigated studies and in the academic literature. But if you zoom out and say, are the broad effects, are there certain broad, consistent, predictable effects that we will see, which we sort of think about as the climate change of culture, as coming from an extractive business model based on harvesting and monetizing human attention, because that's really the meat of what the social dilemma as a film is trying is, is criticizing is the business model that depends on harvesting and modifying people's behavior through monetizing their attention. And that, that asymmetry of power that enables the machines to know something about you that you don't know about yourself, leading to more and more predictable outcomes about how you use the product in more influenced ways will have certain effects. So let's get into them specifically. Much like in climate change, if you went back maybe 50 years or, I don't know, 40 years, you might have different groups of people studying different phenomena. There are some people studying the deadening of the coral reefs, some people studying insect loss in certain populations, some people studying melting of the glaciers, some people studying species loss in the Amazon, some people studying ocean acidification. And there wasn't yet maybe a unified theory about something that's driving all of those interconnected effects. And when you really think about the existential threats as your community you know, is familiar with and studying, I think we want to be concerned about if there's a direction that is an existential one from these technologies or from these systems, 
what is it? And with our case, we see a connected set of effects between shortening of attention spans, more isolation and individual time by ourselves in front of screens, more addiction, more distraction, more polarization, less productivity, more focusing on the present, less on history and on the future, more powerlessness, more polarization, more radicalization, and more breakdown of trust and truth because we have less and less of a shared basis of reality to agree upon. And when you really zoom way out, and I think about what's what I'm most concerned about, it is the net shredding of a shared meaning-making environment and joint attention into a series of micro-realities, as we say in the film, three billion Truman shows, where each of us are algorithmically given something that is increasingly confirming some way in which we are seeing the world, whether that is a partisan way or a rabbit hole sort of YouTube way. And I know some of that is contested, but we'll get into that. And so if you zoom out and say that that collection of effects we call human downgrading or the climate change of culture, because essentially the machines profit by making human beings more and more predictable. So I show you a piece of content and I know with greater and greater likelihood what you're going to do. Are you going to comment on it? Are you going to click on it? Are you going to share it? Because I have 3 billion voodoo dolls or predictive models of each other human, and I can increasingly know with increasing precision what you're going to do when I show it to you. And so that's really what the film and our work is really trying to prevent and not really litigating whether, you know, the, you know, formal addiction score of TikTok in this month versus this <laughs> month is, you know, this much for the, for the exactly this demographic. Interesting. So, so they are kind of focusing on the idea that perceiving the world through online services causes us to just have completely different perceptions of reality. So do you think that is kind of the, the, the number one issue that's, that's being created? I think on a ranked order of harms to the life support systems of society, I think that is really one of the strongest. Yeah. I think that's one of the most concerning. I guess I approach this and a lot of things with kind of my, my economics trading, because that's, that's what I did in undergrad. And so that sometimes brings us to, brings a bit of skepticism about how products could be, could be bad for users. And so I'm always kind of grasping for like, is there some market failure here that's causing this product to be bad, even though people are kind of choosing to use it? And I guess I wonder... Is it just that when people all just have a different reality, they all just form different views about the world? In fact, that doesn't really harm them. It's kind of only harmful at some systematic social level. And so people people don't have a reason to stop using Facebook just because it's causing them to have you know opinions that are so divorced from reality or divorced from the opinions of, of, of other people. Do you think that's kind of the, the market failure issue? Yeah. So I, I appreciate you bringing this up because at the individual level, you could have optimizing benefits that you know, infinite scroll, for example, makes scrolling more efficient. You can see more news in a shorter period of time. So you could actually interpret that positively, even though the film talks about that in a negative way. And we can talk about that. But if you zoom out and that creates a world in which more and more of people's time is basically scrolling by themselves between critical hours when otherwise they may need to, and this is maybe not in the COVID world, but to schedule time being with other people, in general, that's crowding out other fundamental life support systems of a society, which is to say, we need touch, we need eye contact, we need human connection, we need to be with our friends. And if you have a world in which people are increasingly, and this is really not a screen time versus no screen time or smartphones, this is not smartphones. It's really about how the business model creates a specific set of effects, but overall a world in which people are more isolated, you know, more trapped in their own reality. It has a social balance sheet, like you said, the sort of market failure for the commons where the commons of our attention commons and our information sense-making commons is being gradually polluted. So in the case of you know, infinite scroll, we have less and less available shared attention to be with each other, and we have more and more time being with ourselves. In the case of personalization, you said we may be getting each of what we 
quote-unquote want, but I'm also wanting to question that in our conversation. Because I think philosophically, one of the things I'm excited about talking with you today is breaking down the authority of human choice. Because human choice comes from the authority of human feelings. And if human feelings can be sufficiently manipulated, it really isn't a choice in the same way that according to Facebook and YouTube, if they say, what are you people spending the most attention on? And then if they say that's what they like, attention is not a rational act. It's not a choice. When you drive on the freeway in the 101 in San Francisco and everyone stares to the right and they see a car crash, according to the social networking platforms, car crashes are what the entire world wants. And so I actually think there's a philosophical bug in the mental paradigm of Silicon Valley, which I've seen really play out over the last eight years because people really didn't see it this way. I think we're gradually getting to a world where people are able to recognize self-reinforcing feedback loops and that we can't, the technology that doesn't make a distinction between what we want versus what we'll watch is going to lead to many long-term harms to the social balance sheets. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'll give kind of my categorization of things or the way that I kind of structured in my head, and then maybe you can, can react to that. Because I think the last one maybe uh, corresponds to this attention issue or misreading uh, what, what people want. So I guess I kind of structured, oh, I think there's like three broad issues that I see people raising in, in the social network. Uh, so sorry, the social dilemma and, uh, and other similar topics. The first one I think of is like negative effects on politics. And there I think of the, the main market failure being that when people engage in political debate, they're often doing it for kind of entertainment or just because they find it interesting or because they want to like flatter, flatter their own views. And if people form inaccurate beliefs about policy issues or they end up forming beliefs that cause them, say, to vote for a candidate that on reflection they actually wouldn't prefer, that doesn't actually harm them personally. They don't kind of internalize the, the cost of those negative beliefs because in reality, the chance of effect, affecting the election is negligible. And so from a self-interested point of view, it's, it's rational to form beliefs that are enjoyable to have because the impact of, on you of voting incorrectly in some sense is, is not really there. And because people don't really have strong incentives to form accurate beliefs within politics and policy, their beliefs just kind of tend to drift around to whatever happens to be most grabbing or most appealing for for them to believe. And so there's not like a strong kind of feedback loop that drives people to to, to believe the truth or believe what they really would if they were kind of wise and had a lot of time to to reflect. Then there's kind of a second category, which I think was like negative effects on users, which is it's a little bit harder for or like for, for an economist. Maybe it's a little bit more resistance to, to saying there's a market failure here. But I think there is something going on where it's like people seem to be able to be given a compulsion to use products that harm them in the, in the bigger picture, that maybe they enjoy it in the immediate term, but it actually isn't improving their, their life, uh, all, all things considered. And I guess here you've got these products get paid in proportion to how much time they can get you to, to spend on the product, which is kind of a perverse way of, of companies being uh, re- reimbursed because you don't necessarily want to be giving them your time. You want to be uh, receiving benefits, but they're, they're paid in proportion to how much time they can grab from you. And so they design it to be as grabby as possible and to get you to use it even when on reflection, maybe you wouldn't want to. And then there's maybe a third category, which I find a little bit harder to put my finger on, but it's something, I guess, about the, the idea that companies and advertising having a lot of influence over us, like being able to predict what we're going to think too much and being able to kind of just move our beliefs around a bit too easily. Potentially, we can be like puppeted around and, and caused to do things that, again, on, on, on reflection in our wiser self, we, we wouldn't really endorse. Right. And there's even in the third case, there's a question of authenticity, where even if you were to quote unquote, enjoy it, it's not necessarily on reflection, you would not endorse that choice, which is sort of a retrospective ethics of not just what was good in the moment, but on a retrospective, would you say, on a minimization of regret framework, would people feel good about it? But really just that technology is getting increasingly good at being able to shape and steer human behavior. And I hope to be able to convince your audience of that because I know a lot of people think that advertising is not effective. But it's really not about advertising, but we'll, we'll get into that. On the first one about politics, I think it's pretty simple, which is to say that the societies that can communicate and coordinate best reach 
agreement and consensus are going to perform best as democratic societies, meaning they're going to feel high agency, they're going to feel accountable, the people will feel like there's a feedback loop between their concerns, their ability to reach consensus about those concerns, and then what we want to do about it. Let alone the fact that at an existential level, we have several problems in front of us, whether it's AI safety or nuclear (laughs) technologies or climate change that have actually shrinking timelines, where if we do not reach consensus about what we want to do about some of these problems, we are already, just through that stalemate, living in kind of an existential uh, world because we are simply not taking actions on things that we need. And I actually view this as a global national security and competition issue, where I think in the future we'll look back and say the societies that were able to cohere and coordinate best were the ones that outperformed other societies. And right now, social media, by giving each of us a micro-reality where every time you flick your finger, the incentive is to show you something that agrees with your perspective of the world, as opposed to every time you flick your finger, it challenges your perspective of the world and says, actually, here's it's more complicated. In fact, let's just quickly go into that. Imagine Facebook had two versions of, of Newsfeed. One was called Challenge Feed. Every time you flicked your finger, it presented you with something that challenged your view of the world. You can imagine this being possible. And then imagine there's another Newsfeed called Confirmation Feed and morally righteousness feed, where every time you flicked your finger, it gave you even further evidence at why the other side is abominable, not someone we should sympathize with, and not worthy of our love or attention. And that's exactly kind of where we find ourselves in, is that the affirmation feed massively outcompetes a challenge feed. And it's important for your listeners to know that when we make diagnoses about what is the effect of Facebook on polarization or on personalization... This is changing literally week to week and month to month because they're always tweaking the algorithm, which is why I say, if we zoom out and say, broadly speaking, what are the broad incentives? So within some micro variation of slightly less polarizing, you know, I could give you an example of two years ago, Facebook, actually as a result of of some of the critiques that I and other colleagues had been making, changed their core metric from maximizing engagement and addiction. Well, it was really engagement, which was, you know, proxy for addiction to something they called meaningful social interactions which they defined as rewarding downstream engagement. So I don't know all the details of this, but basically what I'm told is you make a post and then how high it gets ranked in the newsfeed for others is based on its predicted likelihood that friends of friends would highly engage with it. And that actually led to more politicization of news. In fact, there was several political parties in Europe who, after this change was made, said, did you change the newsfeed? Because we're getting much fewer views, likes, and comments on their policy PDFs that they were posting and instead getting much more views of their highly polarizing content because that was better for what was called downstream engagement. Now, again, this is changing all the time. Every month it's different. But one of the most profound studies that we know in terms of politics is Facebook's own research, which was leaked to the Wall Street Journal in May of 2020, showing that 64% of extremist groups that people joined on Facebook were due to Facebook's own recommendation system. Meaning not that people said, hey, I want to type in QAnon from scratch in a search box, making a rational choice out of a vacuum, but were instead actually being recommended these extremist groups by the recommendation system. And my colleague, Renee Diresta, who's actually one of the most brilliant people that, that I know on this topic, gives the example of when she was a, a new mother and she joined a Facebook group for do-it-yourself baby food. So organic, make-it-your-own baby food. And you'd say, oh, that sounds like a great use of Facebook groups. It's connecting people, connecting mothers, getting peer support. Sounds awesome. But then Facebook in 2018 had made it a priority to get people to join more Facebook groups. They actually literally had a company mandate to do that because they believed, if you remember changing, they changed their mission statement from let's make the world more open and connected 
to let's bring the world closer together. Our mission is to bring the world closer together. And the way they were going to do that is with Facebook group recommendations. I think they, they changed the settings such that someone could invite you to a group and you didn't even have to opt in. You were just like automatically added to the group. I don't know even whether they've changed that, but I found it infuriating because I'd just be added to all of these random groups. I was like, no, I don't want to be yeah. in this group. <laughs> but this, I guess this is what happened when they're just maximizing some metric that's coming from on high. They don't think about it. That's exactly right. And, and you're bringing up a great example, which is another one of the recommendation system wasn't whether groups that you should join, but you're actually speaking to another one that I've forgotten until now, which is on the right-hand sidebar, they say, here's suggested people that you should invite into this group because they actively wanted to get friends to invite other friends into Facebook groups, thinking that would also be a mechanism for increasing social cohesion and groups. So now if we go specifically to this, this example of the mom's baby food group, when it put up the recommended Facebook groups on the right-hand side saying, here's other engaging groups you're likely to join, what do you think were the most recommended group? Meaning Facebook is making a calculation that if you were to join one of these groups, which one would get you coming back often, posting a lot, clicking a lot, et cetera? Because that's what they're optimizing for is groups that would be engaging for you. So if you're starting with a avatar voodoo doll predictable model of a user who's in a mom's baby food group, which Facebook group would be the most recommended? I think I might know this one. Is it, is it anti-vaccination? That's right. Anti-vaccine <laughs> groups for moms. And so yeah. once, because of course, you know, if you're doing, if you're going your own way as a, as a new mom, you're probably also going to go your own way on, on vaccines. So then when you join that group, what do you think the Facebook group recommendations were after that? Well, then I guess we're getting into more hardcore conspiracy theories. So. Yeah. So, and it's, and it's the slow, slippery slope towards, you know, QAnon and Pizzagate and Flat Earth and Chemtrails and things like that. And it really happened. And you have to imagine this is happening at the scale of millions of people. And once you're in one of those groups, you're in sort of a closed echo chamber where everyone is resonating with the same kind of core ideas and the same core ways of seeing the world. And as you pointed out, you know, there's lots of times that people would gather and only speak to people, to like-minded people. But it's one thing for a group of people to meet in a local YMCA with a box of donuts sitting on fold-out chairs talking about, you know, white nationalism or something like that. And it's another when you have a virtual ability to get groups to millions of people and have hundreds of people commenting and saying the most incendiary things, which we know also were weaponized by different adversaries, whether it's Russia or China to try to actually instigate more conflict. Because unlike that YMCA with, you know, the fold-out chairs and the box of donuts where people would just talk, you know, as a group of 12, you actually have, you know, Russian agents entering into that group and actually stoking further conflict. And I think when you really zoom out and realize that this has happened, you know, in every country all around the world, even if Facebook took the whack-a-mole stick and it whacked, let's say, the anti-vaccine groups as a, and dampened their recommendation rate, which they've done, by the way. And many of the examples that I will give in interviews, whether it's this one or others, they've actually taken the whack-a-mole stick and reduced many of the problems that we've talked about. But I bring them up as examples because if you were to zoom out, the broad behavior of that system left unchecked is to put people into more radicalizing pathways. Yeah, we'll come back to that one in a second. But just taking a step back, I think a lot of people, they feel a certain skepticism about all of this because, you know, they, they know that whenever there's been new technologies in the past, you know, it was violent computer games in the 90s, or I saw this great video about uh, how arcade games uh, were driving kids to, to violence in the 70s and 80s, literally Pac-Man. Then, you know, bicycles are allowing people to go and fraternize and like go to other cities and damaging their, their core values. You know, all through history, people have worried about the downsides of new technologies. And it's not to say they weren't downsides, like often, often there are. But if you look back what people were saying often, it felt like it was blown out of proportion then. And so people are inclined to say, well, maybe we're blowing it out of proportion now. Maybe there are these downsides, but they're manageable. And, you know, we want to be careful not to fall into, into a moral panic, which maybe we, we think has, has happened in the past. Do you have any general reaction to, to that kind of skeptical prior that people might have or skeptical attitude that people might have to, to worrying about the downsides of new things? 
Yeah, I, I think, first of all, it's, it's very important to distinguish between moral panics and what is authentically new and different here. So I first just want to endorse the critical mindedness that we should have when examining new technologies. You know, we, we've had moral panics about many different forms of media, radio, television, yellow journalism for a long time. And we seem to have, you know, we seem to a, still be here and we have adapted to some of them. But I think we have to also recognize that many of those critiques and moral panics were actually accurate. They just may not have played out in the totally catastrophic way that, that we, we imagined. But television did have a zombie you know, effect on the population and led to the mass isolation of people, as Robert Putnam talks about in Bowling Alone and, and so on. So how do you distinguish between moral panics or like justified concerns about new things and, and unjustified things? Because when things are new, we, we don't know how they're going to play out. Like maybe they'll end badly, uh, maybe they won't. To some extent, we have to speculate. But I guess it, it does seem like sometimes we're inclined to, to speculate in a very negative way that maybe maybe goes further than, than what was necessary. Yeah. Well, you can always over-speculate and just assume negative effects. I think that in the case of social media, to the extent people make the critique of our work or in the film that it concentrates entirely on the dark side of these things, it's because people are already obviously familiar with the benefits. The fact that you have people who are able to connect with their lost loved ones from high school or old sweethearts or friends that they haven't seen in 30 years or connect with blood donors, find blood donors for rare diseases, support groups for cancer. There's lots and lots of wonderful benefits, which by the way, you could retain those benefits with with, with Facebook operating more as a, a utility that didn't have an agenda or goals of its own, as opposed to being a manipulation-based environment. That's the main thing, again, we're trying to change here is this business model incentive, which you could still have those benefits of a cancer support group without for example, needing to recommend people into lots and lots of groups, you could take away all recommendations and still have a system by which a cancer support group could, fun- could function well. But, you know, in terms of the differences here, I think we always want to ask, per Marshall McLuhan, that the medium is the message and all technology is non-neutral. So, you know, books were not neutral and made room for sort of long-form argumentation, which had certain phenomenological impacts and related to the human mind in a certain way. They also operate at slow timescales, slow clock cycles, built on focus and, and flow and things like this. Television, radio have different phenomenological kind of relationships and have different externalizing impacts. I mean, the fact that television really did lead to a mass individualization and animization of people at their homes, spending a lot of time at home compared to the kind of shared community spaces that we typically had before that. Zoom is non-neutral. One of the examples that was given to me recently, there's a study showing that since uh, the start of coronavirus, with people actually constantly being fed a mirror image of their own face in every meeting, every single day, there's actually been a rise in... um, uh, desire for cosmetic surgery to look better in your in your Zoom photos. And now, you, again, you could say, Rob, that everyone has wanted to improve their self-image all the time, but there's a difference between, let's imagine we could rewind history to the beginning of COVID and Zoom didn't include a view of yourself in a big form versus it did by default for millions and millions of people. Well, when, you, when you're about to scale up to millions and millions and millions of people, these tiny differences add up into big changes. And so one of the new things with social media is that we have 3 billion people, which is about the size of two Christianities in psychological influence and footprint, that are being daily influenced by a set of parameters that basically highlight and privilege some human experiences, some phenomenological experiences, and suppress others. And so basically, we should be concerned, given the exponential scale of the impact, if we don't have an exponential sensitivity to what 
aspects of the life support systems of a society is it impacting and how. And it's going to include some improvements to certain life support systems of society, but it's also going to be negative. And I think the clearest example of this in the negative is, again, Facebook group recommendations that are systematically, that were systematically steering people towards extremism and and conspiracy-minded stuff, which, again, Facebook's own research, their own leaked presentation from 2018 in that Wall Street Journal article demonstrated to be true. And one of the last things I'll say when it comes to the children's aspect of this, because I know you have some of that research that you've, you've cited and looked into, I think one of the best ways to know what our intuitions are about whether something is good or bad is you ask a, you know, a doctor who's about to tell you <laughs> you should really get this surgery, and you say, well, if it was your child, would you give your own child that surgery? And they'd say, oh, no, I would definitely not do that. It wouldn't be very trustworthy advice from that doctor. In the same way you talk to a lawyer or a real estate agent, these are all fields where there's an asymmetry of knowledge between that actor and, and, and us. And if they wouldn't be willing to do it for themselves, then you know there's a problem. And one of the clearest pieces of evidence is at the very end of the film when you know we say that many tech executives who work at social media companies do not let their own children use social media in the same way that the CEO of Lunchables Foods did not let his own children eat Lunchables Foods, which is, by the way, one of the most popular billion-dollar product food lines. You know, I know you grew up in Australia, but in the United States. So I think that, that the ethics of symmetry you know, doing onto others as we would do to ourselves is one of the clearest ways that we can adjudicate. Again, if you zoom out and, and blur your eyes, that's how we can know kind of what we're looking at. Yeah. Do, do they use it themselves, the, the tech executives? Or is it just that they think uh, maybe kids aren't up, to, aren't up to it? Yeah. I mean, so I think these, these differ, right? So I think tech executives do use social media themselves, but they generally don't use it very much. Um, when it comes to the kids' use of social media, most tech executives I know do not let their own children use social media. And that really should tell you everything. Are there any purported problems that, that people talk about that you actually think we shouldn't worry about too much or like maybe where, where people's attention is being misspent? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, again, one, one thing we haven't really talked about is just that these systems are always in motion, right? So how much polarization or political extremism is Facebook causing in November 2020 or October 2020 when they were doing some of the most clamping down that they've ever done leading into the U.S. election versus even just one year before that or three years before that? And I think one of the things we, you know, it's hard to be pinned down and make an accusation of this specific effect is happening because, again, it's always changing and the algorithm is always changing. And frankly, it's changing to the extent it's changing for the better. It's often because of actually the critiques that we made in the film. And I should make this this point, actually, that when people look at the film The Social Dilemma and they say, oh, you know, Tristan and Guillaume, the ex-YouTube recommendations engineer, just said that if you search for a moon landing video, it, YouTube will recommend flat earth conspiracy theories. And if you actually do that search right now, listening to this podcast, you will find that it does not recommend flat earth conspiracy theories. Not anymore. And the reason for that, <laughs> exactly. And the reason for that is because we were frankly finally successful after again, eight years of, or six years of screaming at the top of our lungs that this is happening. And, you know, I think it was in October of 2020 that YouTube released a blog post saying that they reduced the recommendations of conspiracy theories and borderline content by something like 70 to 80%. So again, if there was not a problem with recommendations of conspiracy theories, why would YouTube have made all those changes? All right, yeah, just zooming out a little bit. When I was watching The Social Dilemma, I think kind of a, a style of argument that, that kept on coming into my head is like, what came before all this was also pretty bad. You know, It's true that you know the people I talk to on social media often share my politics to a pretty significant degree, but it's also true that my social networks, you know, the people I live with, the people I work with, they also kind of agree with my politics. People used to say, you know, in the 70s, it's like, I don't know anyone who voted for Nixon. And this was a known phenomenon that people really bubble themselves. And likewise, I read newspapers. And I'm like, wow, this, this stuff is really low quality reporting. And, and that's and I'm not necessarily reaching it through social media. I'd right? just be seeing it on the newsstand. Tabloids have been selling sensationalist news for hundreds of years. T 
TV also makes money in proportion to how much time we spend on it. So they do they all do all kind of these tricky things to, to keep us watching, like having a cliffhanger just before the ads and having the ads be in a regular length of time so you don't know when to come back. People have compared themselves to idealized lives of celebrities long before Instagram. Advertisers have been trying to persuade us of stuff uh, since time immemorial and so on. And I guess sometimes I wonder whether at least a risk that one might have in thinking about this issue is comparing the messy, grim reality of social media and online services to an ideal world where, you know, our, our views were formed through thoughtful reflection and reading Wikipedia only. But we should compare it, I guess, to what was there before, what would be there otherwise, which is also going to be non-ideal and is going to have its own its own problems and its own filter bubbles and, and so on. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no. And again, I really appreciate all these questions to really, you know, demarcate what's genuinely worth being concerned about here and what's different than than past past moral panics. You know, one example that that comes to mind, text-based mediums are uniquely vulnerable to the ability to falsify credibility. You know, one of the things that we know about persuadability is social proof. The more that other people say something is true or like something or, or share something, the more we would assume that it must be real. You know, it's sort of like the old saying, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? You know, if, <laughs> if, if, if that thing isn't true, then why is everyone I know believing it? And if you want to take it to the extreme, you can look at major world religions that, that are actually incompatible with each other, which have huge followings of hundreds of millions of people, in which many people who are believing in at least a different religion would say, well, it doesn't matter that there's hundreds of millions of people believing that because it's still not true. And, you know, this other belief is true. So we can have situations where the vast majority of people in a society might believe something and have that be persuadable. In fact, that's actually what makes religions spread. In fact, we leverage that, right? Many religions have missions where you go abroad and you talk about and, and show you know, people who are dressed up in a nice suit and, 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 and look very nice. And, and they'll come to you and talk about all the other people that are in the religion. And it's very, very convincing. So the ability to hack what is credible to us through social proof has, has existed for a long time. But I will say that imagine that if you rewound the clock, that instead of any kind of text-based social media, I'm not saying, by the way, this would be practical, but imagine we rewound the clock and that Facebook was actually more like Zoom. So your daily experiences were with Facebook were more like live video conversations with people that were, you know, that same broad social network of, say, 2,000 people. And I think that if people were sharing and telling you that the deep state cabal and pedophile, you know, QAnon theories... If you saw someone in their bedroom, literally in their pajamas in this case, saying this with the tonality and kind of franticness that one would have if they were spreading these conspiracy theories, it would not be nearly as credible coming through the medium of live video as it is when coming through text mediums in which you can reference sites that look somewhat authoritative because it says the Denver Post or some kind of local sounding news website. And one of the techniques, by the way, for those who do propagate disinformation is to hijack the trust that we place in local news, because we actually know that local news is one of the places that we most trust. And you can actually invent local publications that sound fairly legitimate. Uh, I think it wasn't it in The Simpsons when Homer Simpson says something like, oh, Sorny, I love that brand. That's, that's the best <laughs> brand of music, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is what we do, right? We, we come up with brands that sound nearly adjacent to the brands that, that we trust. And it's much easier to hack those credibility signals in a text-based medium with text-based URLs and have people uh, have the false impression of how credible something is. And, and again, we have to, when examining these questions, rewind the clock by about 10 years and recognize just we've been in this mind warp of different politicizing and extremist kind of effects for about 10 years now. And I would say that they've been radically reduced in the last two years. Again, much you know, based on some of the responses to these critiques that we've been we've been pushing for a long time. But needless to say, that's where we find ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so you think that 
text is actually among the the more dangerous media, or at least I guess you think text is more dangerous than one-on-one interaction. What about you know video or, or audio? What determines whether these media are, are more or less risky? Well, so it's not so much just, it's not, I want to make sure I'm clear because maybe even people could misinterpret what I just said. It's not that text is more persuasive. I'd say text is easier to hack the cues and heuristics that the human mind is used to looking at to determine whether something is credible. So when I was actually, for those who don't know my background, you know, I, one of my brief stints was, was through this class at Stanford called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Class and Behavior Design, where you're actually studying how to apply the principles of persuasion to technology. Can technology persuade our thoughts, beliefs, habits, and behaviors? And one of the topics that we studied was the persuadability of credibility. What makes something seem credible? And obviously the production value of something, like the fonts, the colors, the look of high production value aesthetics, the more it it appears to have those high production signals, the more we're likely to trust it. So as an example, Medium as a website uh, (laughs) actually grants credibility to anyone because the typography and the style and the colors and fonts are so credible. And so one of the things that they actually ran into was people were posting ISIS propaganda on Medium. (laughs) And because Medium does not take as its mission statement to be a neutral platform and it's just everyone can write anything, they talk about it as a community for specific kinds of content, specific kinds of material. And they realized that they, if they were not acting, were lending out credibility to actors that were actually not credible. And so I think that's one of the things that I think is vulnerable to in the text form. Yeah. So your background is in persuasion. I guess I'm not sure like how persuadable people are by advertising or um, I guess I don't personally feel like I'm, I'm super influenced by the advertisements that I, that I see online or elsewhere. I find them annoying, but I don't feel like it's influencing my behavior a whole lot. You know, I hear a lot of views online and sometimes they persuade me, but sometimes they don't. I don't feel like I'm so gullible that I just believe all the things that I hear. Am I un- unusual or is or like, what's the situation with kind of human manipulability? There's multiple things going on here. One is I obviously love the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that um, <laughs> you know the vast majority of people believe that they're better than average drivers, which is mathematically in, you know incompatible. Yeah, and and I think I think if you were to ask people, just everyone believes that they're not influenced by advertising at all, right? I mean, everyone believes like that's just only for those gullible people. I think that advertising is not that persuasive overall, and I think one of the mistakes that people have made in in interpreting the critique of the film, The Social Dilemma. It's when we say that the business model of social media is the problem and the business model is advertising, they assume that what we're critiquing is the persuasiveness of advertising. But that's not actually what we're critiquing at all. What we're saying is the business model that depends on technology getting more persuasive at influencing our behavior every year. So for example, you know, when you go to Facebook to look up one thing and you think you're just going to look up that thing and then you're done and you find yourself scrolling through Facebook for another hour in a trance and then you'd like say, oh man, what happened there? I should have had more self-control. What that explanation hides is an asymmetry of power, where behind the glass screen, there's a supercomputer that has an avatar voodoo doll-like version of Rob that, you know, based on all the clicks you've ever made, it adds a little hair to the voodoo doll. So now it looks and acts just a little bit more like you. And based on the videos you've watched on Facebook, it adds a little clothing to the voodoo doll. So now it's even a little bit more like you. And that's what happens in the film Social Dilemma. You'll see the model and avatar of the main character, Ben, get more and more accurate over time. And the premise is that I'm better and better at predicting your next move. And my my friend Yuval Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, talks about the fact that there are going to be things that technology can know about ourselves that we don't know about ourselves. He gives the example of he's gay. And there was a time in his life when he was gay, but he didn't know that he was gay, which he finds fascinating. Because how could something so core to how he sees the world 
be hidden from him? How could he not see that? And do you think that prior to him discovering that on his own, that based on eye movement patterns and click patterns, that the technology would not be able to pick up that signal before he did? And the answer is, of course, no, it can definitely know these features. So one of the dangers is that technology is knowing increasing amounts about us. It's getting more persuasive, not less. It's getting better at building predictable predictive models of us, not worse. And it has more compute power to predict us than less. And at the same time, we're becoming habitualized into more and more predictable, simple behaviors. So for example, if I wanted to fake, if I want to pass the Turing test by faking text that looks like it's coming from a real human, that's getting easier on two fronts. One is that we have GPT-3 now instead of GPT-2, so we're better at manipulating and creating fake deceptive text. The second is that human beings are dumbing down their grammatical styles on comments because we're operating with simpler and simpler pidgin languages, which in which it's actually easier to fake out the authority of human language and, and, and thought because we're actually simplifying our language and thought through the kind of collective downgrading of the mechanisms we've been describing here. So what's the persuasion apocalypse? What's, uh, where do you think this ultimately leads? Well, again, I, the persuasion apocalypse is not on the ability to advertise, although we could talk about a little bit of the dangers there, specifically micro-targeting. We're used to the idea that, you know, if I saw something that you saw it too, you know, that if I'm living in a, in a physical reality of a neighborhood of Los Angeles, then I see people walking around LA. I assume people who also, you know, are broadly familiar with LA and are seeing the same kind of raw experience that I am. Our, our minds are evolutionary evolved for that. We're not evolved to think that this other person next to me has been fed a micro-reality that is 100% different than mine. That you could say in a certain way that reality is getting more and more virtual because each of us are increasingly living in a personalized virtual reality in which we didn't see the things other people saw. So if I say, hey, I saw this ad that said, you know, let's say, for example, I'm Donald Trump and I'm running an ad to someone. I have data about exactly, are you more of, you know, an anti-immigration person? Are you more of an anti-China person? Are you more of a you know, end these endless wars person. And based on what I know about you, I could micro-target a message that is exactly tuned to the thing that I know that you care about. And it's socially subliminal because we assume that other people saw that same ad that we did, but no one else did see that ad. And so what's one of the problems is that we have a completely unaccountable system where because we're each being whispered to with a thousand different tongues and a thousand different ears, we talk about this on our podcast, which by the way is called Your Undivided Attention, uh, with Brittany Kaiser, who is the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. And she talks about the power of micro-targeting and how neurotic people and the big five personality traits always respond to fear-based messages. And increasingly, the technology is able to know our big five personality traits without even having an explicit voter file on us. One of the areas of research we cite from Professor Gloria Mark at UC Irvine is the ability to discern the ocean, big five ocean, O-C-E-A-N, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism based on people's click patterns alone, meaning just on time series data based on how you're clicking and how you move your mouse and just your behavior as your footprint. In the same way that in China, they can detect who you are based on your walking gait by, with 94% accuracy because our actual style of kinetic movement and walking in our body is so identifiable. It's the end of the poker face. In this case, we can identify your personality based on how you're quote unquote walking online. And that in a world where I can predict that you're neurotic and I can hit you with fear-based messages and it's completely unaccountable and invisible to everyone else, that's the more dangerous world that we're, we're heading into. Yeah. 
So when I'm having a conversation with one person, I often know a lot about them and their beliefs and their interests and their personality and so on. And then I kind of craft the way I'm going to say things and the, the arguments that I'd use to try to make it maximally persuasive to them. And then I don't necessarily broadcast it to everyone else. I'm a poor example of that because I might well broadcast it to other people. But by and large, like one-on-one -on -one conversation also has this property that people can perceive quite different realities because they're being told different things because it's being crafted for them. Why is it so different if I'm being fed, you know, advertisements from a political campaign and to one group they're saying one thing about their view on abortion and to another group they're saying a different thing? Well, they can completely be inconsistent, right? They can literally say things that are 100% oppositional and inconsistent with each other, but no one would know because I'm whispering one thing into your ear to agree with you and I'm whispering something opposite to another ear to agree with them. And I can continue to hit them with that same information and surround them, by the way, with advertising everywhere they go. And I, by the way, you know, it's, there's kind of the mainstream versions of these arguments. And then if you actually spend time with the dark arts communities, like I actually know people who do really dark, manipulative political advertising, and they've shared with me, you know, things that unfortunately you can't share in public settings, but are all about the way you can do a completely surround sound echo chamber on a person and use lookalike modeling. Uh, that's one of the things we talk about in the film is for a while using Facebook lookalike modeling, I could say, go into a Facebook group of people who believe the flat earth conspiracy theory or into chemtrails. So they're really, really anti-government. And now I can actually feed that list of user IDs into the Facebook advertising system and say, give me 10,000 users who look just like that. So Facebook has actually allowed me to navigate to and find the most suspicious, cynical, and government distrusting people in your society. And now I can hit them with all sorts of other messages. And that's completely unregulated and unaccountable because you can do this again at micro scales where each person is getting their own micro message of why they should distrust government. And I really think that, you know, when you see this operating at scale and the fact that nation states like Russia or China or Iran or North Korea are spending, you know, tens of thousands and millions of dollars to do this. And it introduces complete new asymmetries of power, which we haven't gotten into because I think that one of the issues here is a massive national security issue. That while we spend a trillion dollars building the F-35 and a trillion dollars revitalizing our nuclear arsenal or protecting our physical borders, we leave our digital borders completely wide open. With a recent podcast episode, we spoke to someone from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and showed that you could actually reach the entire country of Kenya on, on Facebook or Twitter for $10,000, about the cost of a used car. And so it's incredibly cheap when you especially allow those economic asymmetries across national borders to exist. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about this kind of persuasive technology, I suppose one way I could see it running is that people do just get massively persuaded of all kinds of crazy beliefs. Another way it could run is that people just become incredibly jaded and cynical and kind of stop believing anything because they know that they're just being targeted by all of these crazy messages. And over time, kind of culture adapts and people learn that just like things on Facebook aren't to be trusted at all. Because maybe we're seeing a little bit of both because you also see people just like having like less trust in all kinds of sources. Or at least that's that's the way that some people have gone is just ceasing to engage or ceasing to really try to figure out the truth because they think it's a, it's somewhat hopeless. Which is actually, by the way, the goal of many of our adversaries. I mean, Russia's goal is to sow discord and epistemic nihilism, where people actually are not even interested or not even knowing what might be true, and they give up. And when you give up, that's when it's easy to sort of take over and, and do whatever else you want to do. So I think we have to realize that that actual global distrust and that global cynicism and global apathy for what is true and that confusion, which is exhausting, and that's exactly where we are now, leads to a society that stagnates because you cannot get anything done because everyone is operating from a different distrusting or sort of apathetic place. And again, if you view it as a geopolitical competition between Western democracies, which are the most vulnerable to this phenomenon, because it depends on the ability to get consensus and agreement and then action about what we want to do, we're going to be really 
really yeah. in for it. I guess we're also the most disinclined to uh, regulate speech. And so like, yeah. Which is exactly what is also being yeah, exploited, yeah, sure. right? It, it, the fact that we are like free speech absolutists. And in fact, if I'm Russia, I would want to magnify the free speech <laughs> absolutists. And in fact, they do do that. They can actually take whenever the platforms take moderation action on amplified content, they can actually micro target the news stories that cover tech censorship and point those stories right at conservatives so that conservatives get even more angry about free speech absolutism, which then keeps the doorway open for them to use their favorite weapon. I would say that if I'm Russia, Facebook is the most powerful political weapon I have ever had against my adversary. And I actually would want to amplify the voices of people who are pro-free speech because it allows my mechanism for manipulating people to stay maintained. So my impression is that there's been an increase in kind of belief in conspiracy theories, or at least like a fragmentation into like more and more odd conspiracy theories. I slightly worry that it's possible that it's being pinned on on the wrong thing here. So it could be that it's kind of Facebook and YouTube pushing people towards this. Couldn't it also just be that the internet now allows different people to communicate so many different things? And even if YouTube didn't exist, and even if social media didn't exist, people would just be starting up all kinds of websites to promote their their odd ideas. And I guess it's not only conspiracy theories, but all kinds of niche interests that now are being benefited from the fact that we don't just have five television stations. We have millions of websites that we can all go and engage with to try to find people who are like-minded and, and share our own, our own usual beliefs. I kind of think effective altruism, which I'm so into, I don't think it could have existed before the internet because it's just you would never get a critical mass of people into into one place. But now if you have, you know, 10,000 people, they can they can do a whole lot and get together. And likewise, you get people who believe that the moon is made of peanut butter, they can all have their website. And even if Facebook didn't exist, they would develop their own forum on some website that one of them would host. And we might see a kind of similar dynamic playing out. Well, that's, that's such a great point, because I think if you go back to the early 2000s, you know, there were websites that hosted conspiracy theories or whatever. But again, let's look at the choice architecture. How much does it cost to set up a new website in a new domain and post, you know, your crazy ideas about the world and get people there compared to starting a Facebook group. Facebook actually does all the automated recommendation, automated invitations for here's who you should join, and then puts you in a list of recommended groups that are associated with other groups that are likely to get people to join. They've instrumented a process in which there's a self-reinforcing runaway feedback loop. And I know that in the research that you, you cited before this call about YouTube's recommendation systems, there's also a paper by DeepMind in which they actually cite degenerate, what they call degenerate feedback loops, in which they actually admit that YouTube does have a self-reinforcing effect in hollowing, in giving people more and more of these sort of echo chamber views. And I think that's, you know, really, really the dangerous thing here. Have you read um, or heard of the book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the 21st Century by Martin Gurry? No, but I, I skimmed it because you put it in your notes ah. and I saw I didn't have a chance to listen to the interview with the author. But go, go on. Yeah. I think you should have a read. It's, it's very interesting. I think somewhat reasonably even-handed look at how culture is being shifted by some of these internet technologies. I guess one point he makes is that the internet, like social media, but also other, other aspects of the internet, have allowed ordinary people to challenge authority and challenge kind of respected institutions and say, no, what you're saying isn't true in a way that previously they were just shut down and they really didn't have any avenue to do that. And sometimes that leads to crazy conspiracy theories and sometimes that leads to nonsense. Other times it's allowed people who previously you know, might have been very smart and informed but didn't have a huge audience to, to call bullshit on, on organizations that were claiming that they knew far more than they did or claiming they were capable of doing things that they, that they really weren't. And so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, this the situation that we have where, in a sense, democratizing the ability to, to, to spread messages both has significant pluses because it allows good ideas to be surfaced where otherwise they, they might have been hidden. But I suppose also, it, like in as much as people aren't very good at judging what is what is true and what is not, it also allows bad, bad ideas to, to spread incredibly quickly. 
I guess the challenge is going to be like, <laughs> and maybe we'll come back to this later. Like ideally what we'd like is for, you know, maybe the Facebook and I guess whoever the domain host that decides who gets a website and who doesn't to just give websites to people who uh, have good ideas, but not to others, not to people who have bad ideas that they're promoting. But yeah, unfortunately that, that's not an option. So we have to like live in a very much second best world. Yeah, this is, this is really, really good. So we've always had situations where the gatekeepers that ran the kind of public narratives and moral consensus might disagree with what we would later determine to be really incomplete and and regressive moral values. So for example, the civil rights movement disagreed with the moral consensus at that time. And you obviously need an ability to have a system, a democracy in which ideas and consensus can constantly evolve. That's what we're really designing for, right, is, is the ability for ideas to be questioned and challenged and to evolve the moral values that we have in a society. And that's how we've gotten many of the progressive sort of outcomes that, that have you know, taken place over the last you know, 50 years. However, the question we should be asking is, what is the basis for what ends up winning in that contradiction? Because when you have conspiracy theories, just some stats for people, YouTube recommended Alex Jones Infowars. For those who don't know, he's the conspiracy theorist who actually said that the Sandy Hooks shootings were crisis actors in which kids at the school were shot and that the parents were accused of making all this up and being hired by the Obama administration to do this, and that these parents who've lost real children are still to this day hounded by conspiracy theorists who followed Alex Jones and have emailed me saying, you know, that, that what a huge cost this is to their lives because they had to move houses multiple times from, the, get, from getting repeatedly doxxed. So Alex Jones' InfoWars videos were recommended by YouTube 15 billion times which is more than the combined traffic of Fox News, Guardian, BBC, New York Times combined, right? Do, do you know what the total number of recommendations is? Because I want someone might say, well, 15 billion, but is that a lot in the scheme of all of the recommendations that it's making given how many how many users they have? It's a, it's a bit hard to judge intuitively. Well, actually, you're making such a good point here because one of the problems overall is that the scale of and dimensionality of impacts of, say, YouTube is so massive that 0.001% of something can sound like it's incredibly small, but 0.01% of a billion hours watched daily is actually huge. And that's, I think, what the real meta issue here is when you look at the dangers of exponential technologies is we're having greater and greater exponential impacts without greater and greater sensitivity, prudence, or wisdom to know what sort of complexity domains that we are impacting. So if you have godlike powers of Zeus and you bump your elbow by accident, you're going to scorch half of Earth. So you can't be Zeus and have a blind spot in your eye because then you might actually cause real damage. I think that's the overall paradox that we find ourselves in. Rob here with a little cut in. Uh, Tristan is about to refer to a paper that we had talked about before we started recording the interview, but which we haven't actually mentioned yet. Uh, That paper called Algorithmic Extremism, Examining YouTube's Rabbit Hole of Radicalization, claims, uh, and I quote, YouTube's late 2019 algorithm is not a radicalization pipeline, but in fact removes almost all recommendations for conspiracy theorists, provocateurs, and white identitarians. It benefits mainstream partisan channels such as Fox News and Last Week Tonight, and disadvantages almost everyone else. You can find a link to that in the show notes, uh, as well as blog posts and articles contesting that conclusion. All right, back to the interview. And also one of the problems with these papers that have said that YouTube is not radicalizing people, which it's true, it's radicalizing people much, much less now than it did two years ago, is that it's only studying it based on anonymized viewing of YouTube. So you you know just click around, you have headless Mozilla browsers doing analysis, et cetera, clicking through videos and seeing what does it tend to recommend to people. But that's different than you know going into your account, Rob, and saying, hey, there's these specific rabbit holes that you've gone into in the past and seeing what is it recommending for a personalized user. And again, the fact that we don't know the answer to these questions, we don't have monitoring tools. I think of this much like if Exxon, you know, one of the creators of climate change, 
also had a monopoly on all the monitoring stations for how much CO2 and methane was getting released in the world. One of the biggest problems is that we actually don't know how big these problems are because external researchers don't have the data or compute power to do independent research that's validated. Everyone is operating on some skewed perspective. But you can look at something like Alex Jones and get a rough count, as we did, of the minimum set of you know, recommendations. And, you know, it recommended Holocaust denial tens of millions of times. It recommended flat earth videos hundreds of millions of times. This is far greater in terms of reach and traffic than you could have gotten by starting your, you know, YMCA meeting with fold-out chairs and donuts, or even a, a stand-up website domain, which, you know, back in the 2000s, you would have stand-up websites for, you know, aliens and UFOs and flat <laughs> earth, but they didn't get nearly the traffic of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, it's a very interesting point that you make that it's so hard to know the scale of these problems because I guess the more I was looking into this, I, I, I just often felt very unsure because it's so hard to prove really one way or the other. Like earlier, we were talking about the fact that Russia is trying to destabilize countries like the US, promoting messages that they think will lead to, to social discord, which I completely believe. But then I wonder, like, how much money are they spending on it? Like, how effective is that? Because it could be that it's like that a lot of it is driven by the FSB or, you know, other other Internet Research Bureau, whatever, whatever it is that they have that, that have large budgets to, to do this kind of thing. But maybe it also is just kind of human weakness that humans are inclined to tribalism and often aren't that thoughtful about the things that they say. Trying to tell how much of it is being driven by by bad actors, we often just don't have the data to really settle it. So, so we're left with all of these troubling concerns, but then we can't really settle the question unless, you, unless I guess, Google lets you run the analysis. And likewise, with this conspiracy website, it's be like, well, how big a problem is it? It's probably really only Google can say, and it probably might be difficult for them to figure it out <laughs> anyway. That's right. And I think one of the things that's also challenging here is, again, even at small scales, you can have lasting effects. I want to really go into briefly just conspiracy theories are like trust bombs. What they do is they, they're like a nuclear bomb for trust. They, they erode the core trust that you have in any narrative. In fact, one of the best pieces and strongest pieces of research is that the best predictor of whether you'll believe in a new conspiracy theory is whether you already believe in one because you're daisy chaining your, your general view or skepticism of the overall narrative and applying it with confirmation bias to the next things you see. And one of the best examples of this, a, a famous, famously a Soviet disinformation campaign in 1983 seeded the idea that the HIV virus raging around the world was a bioweapon released by the United States. And this was based on an anonymous letter published in an Indian newspaper and it ended up becoming widely believed among those predisposed to distrust the Reagan administration. And as my, my colleague, Rene Diresta, who used to be at the CIA and studied this for a long time, said, as late as 2005, a study showed that 27% of African-Americans still believe that HIV was created in a government lab. And so these things have staying power and reframe power on the way that we further view information. Another example of this, and this is, by the way, from my Senate testimony or my congressional testimony in January 2020, people can look it up online. The, I think it was called Americans at Risk, uh, Deception in the Digital Age. There's also a bit here about how Russian trolls operated. The quote is, this is from a former Russian troll. We did it by dividing into teams of three, he said. One of us would be the villain, the person who disagrees with the forum and criticizes the authorities in order to bring about a feeling of authenticity to what we're doing. Then the other two enter into a debate with him. No, you're not right. Everything here is totally correct. And one of them should provide some kind of graphic or image that fits the context. And the other has to post a link to some content or that supports his argument. You see, villain, picture, link. And so I think what people don't really see, because it sounds like this is just a conspiracy theory, is why would foreign actors be spending all this money and developing all these techniques if it weren't valuable? And I recommend people for learning more about this, check out the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, which released a report, I believe in October 2019, 
about Russia's various attempts to influence many countries in Africa right now, actually. Because one of the issues we haven't gotten into, Rob, is the fact that this is a global problem. And actually, if we look at the problems that we've been mentioning, the U.S. and Western democracies probably have the best of the kind of social outcomes that we're worth concerning about. And the countries in the global south, in which you don't have content moderators actually checking Ethiopia, where there's actually 200 languages or 200 dialects and six major languages that are online, and there's actually currently being thought of as the second sort of major genocide that's going to occur from Facebook, is what's happening in Ethiopia right now. I think of this as, you know, Facebook monitors something like 80 elections around the world, uh, is running 80 elections around the world. And obviously, the war rooms and the amount of attention and resources that they, that they put into the United States is far greater than the hundreds and dozens of countries around the world in which you have these same phenomena with much less oversight and much, again, more manipulation due to foreign actors and also, again, the organic problems of polarization. And so I, I think one way to think of this is that much like the flatten the curve rhetoric of the COVID era, that you know there's only so many hospital beds and we got to make sure we keep the amount of intake low, Facebook in managing hundreds of countries only has so many hospital beds or election war rooms. And, you know, while they put most of the resources and ICU beds dedicated recently to the United States because of our recent election, there's also an election coming up in Myanmar, where we know some of the worst of these things has happened. And I think of this like, you know, Facebook sitting on top of a stovetop of all these boiling pots and pans with, with water in it. And they have literally inside their company a at-risk score. So for each country, they have a, a general way of ranking. How likely is it that civil unrest is sort of coming up? And they have to prioritize, much like EA does between the size of the country, the size of the impact, and how bad, how, how, you know, how far into genocide territory are we, are we talking about in terms of social cohesion and risk. My understanding is that the civic integrity team that does this work at Facebook is actually funded by the antitrust budget as a way of demonstrating that they're actually doing work to, to manage the global commons. But again, they don't have nearly enough ICU beds, content moderators, or people who speak the languages of the hundreds of countries that they operate in. And that's really, I think, what I want people to get is much like climate change affects the global south the worst. In this case, the global south is impacted by these phenomena the worst as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Just just occur to me, we can kind of use Facebook and WhatsApp. As, well, like I said, WhatsApp is kind of a control group because it doesn't have the algorithmic issues and maybe it doesn't have the targeted advertising. It's just uh, kind of one-to-one or like, well, it has groups, but yeah, it, it's a one-on-one messaging system that that lacks that kind of abuse. But nonetheless, I guess we see conspiracy theories spreading on there and many bad ideas have been spread on that that potentially have led to like serious political problems and and murder, I guess, in, in Myanmar and I think also India and, and, and Brazil sometimes. Yeah. Can we actually address that really quick? Yeah, this yeah. is one of the critiques that came up of the film is they say, oh, the film focuses all on Facebook and, and not on, for example, WhatsApp, where around the world, WhatsApp is much more prominent. Um, one thing people should know is that um, Facebook has a program called Facebook Operator Solutions or Free Basics in which they partner with telecommunications companies in developing markets where people are getting a cell phone for the first time. And the deal is you get a cell phone and it comes preloaded with a new Facebook account. And this is what happened in Myanmar. You had an entire country, which as of something like 2005, no one was on the internet. And by 2015, I think you had 13 million people or something on the internet. And you only had, I think, three people inside of the Facebook or the content moderation contractors that actually knew or spoke the language. And one of the issues here 
is not just the recommendation systems that we've been talking about in AI, but also, again, the human vulnerabilities of social proof. So the fact that on WhatsApp, you go into a country like India or Myanmar, where there's low digital literacy, you have to keep in mind, these people did not grow up with HTTP colon slash slash and know what WWW is and know what TCP IP is or learn about, you know, chain letters, you know, that we learn to ignore from our grandparents and our aunts. These are people who are going online for the first time. And for them, if they see a video or a photo of, say, a Muslim that that is purported to have killed a cow. This is one of the phenomena going on in India. They're called flesh killings, where there's actually, I think the, the number I got from a, a friend who was at Facebook is that there used to be five of these incidents, these flesh killings that, uh, per year. And now there's something like a hundred as a result of the fact that WhatsApp makes it. So it's never been easier to say, let's go lynch those Muslims over there because they actually you know, killed our, our sacred cows quite literally. Yeah. I think I have some degree of optimism that some of these problems will be solved naturally through people learning through experience. Like I've I've been addicted to social media in the past, and I guess to some extent I am now, but I've, I've learned to manage it. I, I know friends who have come to believe quite foolish things, I think, because of stuff that they've read online. But I see that less and less through people I know because I think just over you know a decade or two, people start to learn more how to, how to manage this and they learn from previous negative experiences. And I guess also I've read some research suggesting that it's seniors who are most vulnerable, I think, to, to some of the worst misinformation. And perhaps it's because they haven't really been trained since the crib to have a good sense of like what, what sources are reliable and which, which aren't uh, online. So that's, that's at least like one ray of light that I suppose it could, it could take a while, but uh, in countries where people are, you know, have been getting internet in the last five or 10 years for the, for the first time, that maybe there'll be some improvement as they learn to be more skeptical of messages that they're being forwarded. Well, I mean, there's certainly a partial truth in that, you know, here in the United States, we are much more skeptical and aware now than we ever were of social media. And I think actually the social dilemma has done a lot around the world to increase a sense of digital literacy and skepticism. But I still think we're, we're far away from genuine, comprehensive understanding. And I think what I worry about is the incentive of, you know, a Facebook or a TikTok, again, trapped in a game theoretic race to capture a new emerging market or new telecommunications, you know, country or, or partner in, in Africa and to be caught in this race to capture that market in its private walled garden of social media and define its social media infrastructure in Facebook's terms versus in TikTok's terms, while having these problems and, and having the maximum incentive to get in there quickly without actually having the, you know, the protections in place. I, I was told a story that Discord, which is one of the places where a lot of the neo-Nazis and white nationalism you know, groups are, was actually funded by a venture capitalist who knew that there was neo-Nazis and a neo-Nazi problem on, on the social network, but gave them 15 or something million dollars anyway in funding because of the assumption that they'll figure it out somewhere else, you know, somewhere down the road. And this is, again, where the financial incentives to grow at all costs because of the VC model and the expectation for instant growth, I think creates these problems. And, and one thing people should, I think, use as a, when you project out into the future and why I worry about these systems is that from a venture capitalist perspective, what you're funding is a tighter and tighter trajectory from zero to 100 million users. Social networks are competing to get to 100 million users faster and faster than ever could before. And that was the kind of benchmark. I think it took Facebook something like five years to get to 100 million users. You know, and then Instagram was, I think, faster than that. Snapchat was, was faster than that. TikTok, I think, did it in something like one year. They reached 100 million users. And so it's not just that the services gain widespread adoption really quickly and they're competing to do so. It's also that they're competing to give each of us exponential stadium-sized audiences faster and faster. Because, Rob, the way I convince you to use the next version of TikTok is to say, hey, Rob, hey, I know you reach, you know, maybe 50,000 people on Instagram now. 
But the way I'm going to convince you to switch over to TikTok is I'll give you a bigger audience even faster. So I'll give you that digital drug hit of you're going to be even more loved, more comments, more likes. And this is exactly how TikTok has actually accomplished its success. Hmm. One thing that we haven't talked about is that kind of the structure of these websites can influence the way that people talk to one another and arguably makes people more hostile, less constructive. I think this is, this is a worry. Uh, I guess I heard more about it a couple of years ago, that it's like the shortness of tweets, for example, causes people to say things that are firstly slightly wrong. So you can almost always object because they've only had 120 characters, but also to be incredibly curt with one another and not really to flesh out their view and not really to add any in, in any politeness modifiers. Uh, you know, um, on Facebook, because people are engaging in so many of the discussions, they often type things out incredibly quickly without really, and they often don't know the people they're talking to. There's no like body language, no, no feedback. I guess I find that very plausible. I guess I also know that in the pre-internet era, I saw lots of people arguing and being very rude to one another. People don't need the people don't <laughs> need the internet in order to, to not be kind. What is the best research out there on kind of how maybe the, the design of these products shapes the way that that people interact and whether those interactions are hostile or, or friendly? Yeah, there's so much on this. I used to be deeper into the academic research on this, but again, our, our work is focused on the high-level trends the last last few years. There's one study that for every word of negative moral emotional language you add to a tweet, you increase the retweet rate by about 17%. This is a retrospective study of tweets, but that's what was uh, what was found. I think you're already pointing out the core thing here, which is you know, imagine a social network or a conversational environment in which the way you participated was by before you responded to the person you're responding to, you opened the sentence with you suck. And then you said <laughs> what you wanted to say, you know, how constructive would that social environment be? And in the classic medium is the message focusing on form instead of on content. I think the fundamental form of threaded conversations in which the replied comment that will appear at the top the way that it appears at the top is by being the most incendiary. And so what you end up with, if you're especially following the U.S. elections right now, is the most sort of extreme one-sided grievance-based you know, tweet about why the election was stolen or not stolen, followed by the strongest possible incendiary reply that has a completely opposite balance sheet of grievances that it's speaking to. For example, I've been really looking at this recently. If you, you know, go online, you will find, if you're on the Trump side of things, infinite evidence of Biden supporters who theoretically are for unity and for healing, but you'll find video after video of cars that are driving by these Trump caravans with the huge flags, flipping them off and saying, neener, 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 and you're a white supremacist and you're a bigot. And if I'm on the Trump side, my newsfeed is filled with evidence of that. So from my perspective, where I'm sitting, the Biden camp is the furthest away from unity and healing, and the left is living a complete contradiction. Now, if I'm on the right side of things, I see the opposite stream of videos, of video after video after video of overwhelming evidence of huge Trump cars and huge trucks, you know, running up inside of uh, next to the car and then punching the guy in the face. And each side has this overwhelming evidence of why the other side does not deserve our sympathy and is we should not treat them as human because those are the things that are going to get the most traction. And imagine that we were able to, through the conversation we're having now, able to convince people to be way more compassionate. So let's say 50% of people suddenly we snap our fingers, and this is a thought experiment philosophy, became way more compassionate and stopped posting these incendiary things. It wouldn't change the fact that the remaining percentage of people, there's still going to be some small percentage that are operating in this sort of incendiary way, and they will still be rewarded. And so we will continue to have the false perception that the other side does not deserve our sympathy. And this is really, Rob, when I jump way ahead, you know, in this country, we have fractured the national psyche into watching two completely different movies of reality where we're each 100% convinced that the other side has been nasty to us 
evil to us and doesn't deserve our sympathy. And I think that's really the the key issue that we have to have a mass healing. And I've been actually been talking with couples therapists and Esther Perel and people who study marriage counseling to figure out how do we heal the nation from you know a hostile relationship in which each side is really watching two different movies about what's happening in the relationship. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the US seems particularly bad in this respect, at least among developed countries. I know we've we've seen a bunch of polarization and maybe more inter-political group hatred in, in other countries, but it doesn't seem to be universal. It does seem like there's some countries that are resisting this, at least so far. Like I, I'm originally from Australia. My impression is that people in Australia aren't like that much more head up than they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. There's, there's this political conflict, but it doesn't look like the United States, the way that that's transformed over the last five years. Which then raises the question, is it the internet, which has been everywhere, or, or is it something about the, these countries specifically, and, or at least like maybe some countries are vulnerable to this kind of thing and, and some countries aren't? It seems like it's, it's a bit more complicated than just you know, social media leads to polarization and, and conflict necessarily. Yeah, totally. This is such a, a great point. I think what we have to look at is self-amplifying feedback loops, because I think that's what's here. And so if you start with a, a culture in which there is already high polarization, you have and you run an amplification loop on that, it's only going to take a, a small, it's going to take a smaller number of cycles to see that polarization play out into the place where we now see ourselves, right? Where you have maximum grievance and hatred for, for each other's side. You're not going to see as much of that effect in countries that start off with much lower polarization or maybe with more, more political parties than two. We have to also add in the, the variable that there has been maximum incentive. I'd say the US is the central target of driving up polarization, both from external actors, which have successfully done this. Again, we're, we're about 10 years into this mind-warping process. And I think that the U.S. was caught completely blind about what was going on in 2016. You have to really go back and remember what YouTube looked like. We actually did a, a study, uh, Guillaume Chaslow, who's the YouTube recommendations engineer, studying what were the most common words that showed up in the right-hand sidebar on YouTube videos, the most common verbs. And the t- 15 most popular were something like obliterates, hates, shreds, destroys, you know, Jordan Peterson destroys social justice warrior in video, all caps, right? And, and even if you sort of got rid of all the quote unquote fake news, the background radiation of us versus them, tribal in-group, out-group, you know, hatred was, was the background sort of assumptions that we were all being fed for, for a long time. And so it's, it's really, like you said, a hard thing to measure. And I think the claim that social media companies go with is that they're simply holding up a mirror to your society. If you already have those conspiracy theorists, we're just showing you a mirror and we're really sorry that we've made them visible because you already had them. If you already had those teen girls with depression and isolation, we're just showing you a mirror and showing that, yeah, they're right there. But what really is going on is that they've reflecting back not a mirror, but a funhouse mirror in which what dimensions have gotten amplified are the things that were profitable. And as they say in the film, The Social Dilemma, you know, so long as our attention is the thing that's being mined and it's commodified in the same way that in industrial capitalism, a a whale is worth more dead than alive and a tree is worth more as $10,000 of two by fours than as a tree. In this model, we are the whale, we are the tree, and we are worth more when we are addicted, distracted, polarized, outraged, and disinformed than if we're a thriving citizen or a growing child who healthily has, you know, kids to play with on the, you know, on the outside in the park. Yeah. I know that sounds more like a political stump speech, but I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's critical that people see the fundamental economic incentive that I think is domesticating us into a certain kind of habitually trained, attention economy friendly human that participates in a way that, that is profitable for the overall system. Yeah. Okay. I had a whole lot of other questions about other 
arguments in favor and against these products having downsides. I think though, I want to skip forward to the solution section or what, what should be done. In part, because I guess what well, the, the social dilemma didn't, didn't have a lot to say about that. So it's potentially something that we can add. Maybe also because I think many people may be resisting these arguments in part because they sense that the next step is going to be arguments for policy changes or changes to the products that they don't support or that they're very nervous about. In particular, you know, having more government control or you know, putting, putting experts in control of what, what ideas can be promoted. Another reason is just actually, I have no idea what I want to be done. I'm, I'm concerned about these things. I don't understand them through and through, but I really don't know what I want these companies to do because it seems like a lot of the things that they might try could backfire. And likewise, you know, getting the government involved in this could, could turn out to be even worse than, than what we have now. So I guess I had two sections on this. One is like, what do we want the government to do? What's kind of the, the policy level? And another one is just, if you're speaking to staff inside these companies, to, to the software engineers, to the managers, what would you recommend that they do? Is the one that you'd rather take first? Yeah, well, if you zoom out, I think what we need here is a, a whole of society and whole of the private industry and public sort of response. What I mean by that is much like in climate change, where you probably both want some, you know, more extreme cultural motive, you know, reactions like Extinction Rebellion to motivate faster, more urgent change. And Greta Thunberg's out there. You probably also want as many people inside of Exxon investing in carbon sequestration and carbon removal technologies. You probably also want governments investing in carbon taxes and transition plans. You probably also want Jeff Bezos and billionaires dedicating hundreds of billions of dollars to climate-friendly policies. You probably also want, you know, the public to actually have the kind of common global awareness about, you know, each person participating in a slightly better way, because we know from climate change, it only works if you really have everyone participating in a more climate-friendly way. That's the only way we're going to get there. And I think with this problem of the human downgrading climate change of culture, it's going to require a whole of society response in the same way. You know, we, we have worked extensively with people at the tech companies and hosted conversations. We generally find that the more radical solutions are not attempted and you get things like Instagram just choosing to remove the number of like counts that you get so that now kids aren't quite so addicted to the number of likes. But there's still the fundamental problem of, you know, I pulled a slot machine and I see that I got more likes than I did last time and uh, more comments than I did last time. And it still acts in that same kind of fundamental way. So we're only seeing cosmetic changes when it comes from the platforms as opposed to deep structural changes. Yeah, I feel like with climate change, though, I kind of know what technologies need to be promoted and I have a good sense of what government policies would, would help to, to roll them out. I feel much less much less sure here about like, actually, how would I like these products to look differently? And maybe it's just unreasonable to expect us to have a full vision of that at, at, at this stage because it's going to be an, an iterative thing. But uh, yeah, I'm still curious, like if you became Mark Zuckerberg, suddenly you, were, you, had, fa- you had Facebook, you had a lot of discretion over how Facebook should be run. What kind of changes would you, would you like to see made? Or, or, what, or at least like what changes would you like to research to see if they, if they help? You know, I actually really appreciate you bringing up what changes would we like to see researched because one of the problems is that they have a monopoly on the experimentation about what would help. I think one of the challenges here, and people have criticized us for not offering concrete solutions, it's because this is a Frankenstein which is having exponentially complex sets of impacts, positive effects on certain balance sheets, negative effects on some other balance sheets. And the only people, as we said, you know, that know how much of those positive and negative impacts are and could even put in place metrics, and many of the effects we're talking about are even harder to measure, but the only companies that could do that measurements are the companies themselves. And they have maximal disincentive to actually know what those harms are, because once they know what those harms are, they're responsible for them. And just so people know, this has actually led Facebook recently to want to encrypt private group communication, because now if the neo-Nazis are talking and it's all encrypted in privacy, 
using the, you know, leveraging the cultural momentum around, hey, Cambridge Analytica and privacy under the guise of that supposedly beneficial framework. They're using that to avoid and abdicate responsibility for even being able to moderate or know how bad certain problems are because they're throwing away the lock and key. So I'm not meaning here to disparage the technology. I think what we need actually is whole university disciplines that are dedicated to almost like we had SimCity you know, for simulating complex environments, um, agent-based modeling, you know, how different behaviors result in different kinds of social outcomes. We need that kind of rapid experimentation because there's really only a handful of people at these companies who've been there long enough with the institutional knowledge to know, oh yeah, we ran that experiment. We tried changing, maximizing time spent to maximizing meaningful social interactions and downstream engagement. And we saw that that had these five unintended negative consequences. So that institutional knowledge is not widely known. And I think that we need whole university programs where there is more experimentation. I've actually, in talking to people who are inside of some of the big companies, they wish that there was something like a, a Peace Corps or something like a civilian corps where people who are engineering trained or sociology trained are able to come into Facebook for sort of a tour of duty of positive sort of social experimentation. Because one of the problems, uh, Rob, that, that people don't talk about actually is the problem that these companies have had hiring talented people. Largely, in fact, as a result of the success of, I think, these critiques in which people feel less positive about wanting to work at Facebook overall. And that actually is one of the economic levers that will cause these companies to change is when they find that they cannot hire and retain the best talent because the talent is skeptical of the fundamental business model. And that puts pressure on them to ultimately change. But in this case, the chemotherapy can also kill the patient because the patient is the underlying society that Facebook has, you know, like a parasite kind of grafted itself onto. And one of the issues is that there's actually a high turnover rate of talented employees at some of these companies. I think Twitter for a while was only retaining the average length of retainment of an employee was like a year, which means that you can't make big radical sweeping changes because there's not enough people around who know how it works. So I think what we need is algorithmic governance. We need more universities and programs where people can actually do simulations of what kinds of things would help. We need far more experimentation and funding for experimentation of alternative social networks. One of the exciting trends from after the film, The Social Dilemma, is seeing that there's many more attempts at, at new forms of social media in the form of either Clubhouse or Telepath or Burning Man even talking about making a new social network. And I think that's exciting that people finally feel like the public might come along to an alternative if there was enough of a better design in which that would work. Because up until now, the monopoly effects and network, network effect monopolies of Facebook and, and TikTok and so on make it very hard to depart the network that you're in. So there's, there's actually a very big conversation here about solutions, but I, we should probably dig through it in a more structured way. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, yeah, what, what kinds of experiments would you, or like what things would you like them to experiment with? I guess like one obvious option, for example, would be changing the kinds of things that they show in the news feed to say, not show you so many things that aggravate you and show you more things that make you happy, for example. Do you have, is there kind of a list of experiments out there or, or proposals for reform that, you know, if Facebook suddenly was uh, super on board with trying to shift how they made money or trying to shift the effects that they're having on politics that, that they could pick up and, and, and run with? You know, I think, I don't know if you're familiar with Drawdown. Carbon Drawdown? Yeah, Carbon Drawdown. So the, there's a book called Drawdown by Paul Hawken that was a, a nonprofit group that mapped, modeled, and measured the top 100 most you know, powerful solutions to reverse global warming. And I think that we need to crowdsource from a community. And frankly, this is what the work that we would like to be trying to accelerate and host is providing those design prompts and invitations to the community and to your community, frankly, Rob, with, with 80,000 Hours and the Effective Altruism community. Because one of the things is we need way more people working on this problem. And that's really what the social dilemma was in, in many ways also trying to accomplish is I think awakening the world so that there's many more policymakers who are taking this seriously, many more designers who are actually thinking about how to design technology in a way that doesn't cause these problems. So 
I want to first claim that the people who've created some of these problems, including myself, and, and not that I actually created the problems that are in the film, actually, unlike some of the other people who, who, who are more in the film and, and kind of regretting some of the inventions that they've, that they've made. But I think they're not going to be the ones to tell us all the, the solutions. And I think this is going to take a more diverse group of minds to think about that. I mean, in the same way that you, if Facebook doesn't have anyone who grew up in Soviet Russia, they're not going to be familiar with the disinformation tactics that Russia uses. If you have people at Instagram who are not mothers, they're not going to be as familiar with the problems that mothers face with their teenage daughters who have body image issues or self-harm issues. So I think we're going to need a more diverse group of people, which is why I think we need to crowdsource the solutions. But I think if you zoom out, one of the core questions that I'm asking is how is a, a model of social media that's based on user-generated content and the promise that your thing can go viral to 100 million people, is that kind of core logic compatible with a democracy that is working well? And I, I worry that the answer is no. And that doesn't mean let's moderate and pick which things can go viral. It means that a bottom-up approach to you know, seduce people into the fame lottery and the attention casino that if you post the right thing and especially rewarded based again on what gets clicks and attention, we know that 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 just pulls out the kind of worst of us. And I think we need to think about what are different metrics or different virality mechanism on what basis and what kind of wisdom would things go viral. For example, let me give you one clear example. Our attention is agency blind. This is actually why in the serenity prayer, the notion that, you know, God, give me the wisdom. What is it to uh, uh, know the things that uh, I can't know, change know and the things that I can't and have the wisdom to tell yeah. the difference. Right. And, and that's often from the wisdom traditions. And I'm not trying to do Kumbaya, Pollyanna, <laughs> you know, uh, drawing in from all wisdom traditions, which have many flaws. But in general, I think to the extent there's a baby that we threw out with the bathwater, there's usually some kind of core rule, almost like an operating manual for wise sense making and choice making and well being and meaning that we are losing. And one of the reasons that that particular serenity prayer of knowing what we have the agency to change and knowing what we don't is that our current social media systems are agency blind. The attention economy generally rewards things that are actually not within our agency. And I think it's one thing, you know, that's always been around where our attention is not selecting for things that give us agency because we evolved in environments in the tribe with 150 people where generally the things you pay attention to, you would have agency about. But what would a social media environment look like in which the things that got rewarded or went viral were the things that were most agentic, that were most encouraging and empowering to show us the things that we could do in our community. For example, if Facebook had made it possible for every city and small town to have the list of the top 10 climate interventions in their town and how many people they would need to get to pass those little microclimate policies in their local town or state. And then if it had a global map showing how every town around the world was coordinating to make those bigger changes in climate policies and focusing our attention on agency as opposed to grievances and complaining and posting. Because again, I think it's not just about social media that has positive posts or healthy posts or things that make us happy. It's also about what gives us the sense of agency. Because I think you were also alluding to this in your referencing of the the other book, was it The, The Revolt of the Public, that one of the reasons that there is this revolt is people not feeling a connection or participation or a sense of agency with their government, that their government is not actually responsive to their real needs. And it's been decades that things have not changed. And imagine an attentional environment that really refocused all of our global attention on a daily basis to things that got better. And I know that, I don't know about you, but when I've done that in my own life and I have a treadmill of you know, positive, subtle improvements on a daily basis, things just getting better, that is a very powerful feedback loop. And you know, I think we need a whole bunch of design prompts like that for people to think about social media that enables that kind of shift to happen. When I think about climate change and I think about social media being potentially 
you know, in the same way that we could get angry about nuclear weapons or we could get very excited about nuclear power, we could look at social media as being the largest mass coordination engine we've ever had and maybe the one that we need to defeat a problem like climate change or AI risk or some of the other existential threats that we are now facing. So it seems like you've got a pretty hard challenge here because uh, these companies, they didn't choose, the, well, they've chosen a business model that makes them the most money, at least in their view, that, that they think that this is the thing that's going to be most profitable. And for various cultural reasons, sometimes legal reasons, they feel like they, they have to do the thing that's going to make the most money, or that's what they've, they've decided to do. And then I guess you could try to change that maybe through government policy, but then the policymakers in this area, I don't feel are super informed and have like brilliant ideas for how to, how to shift things. I haven't really seen, you know, any policies on the table that would explain how would we get a company like Facebook to have a different a different goal function other than maximizing its advertising revenue that really seems seems viable. So I, I suppose financial pressure can be applied, for example, by making it hard for them to hire the best people because people feel pessimistic about the, the social impact of, of the company. So, so maybe that's that's one leverage point. And that, that I want to say that one has been very successful. I mean, again, yeah. we've been working on this for eight years, and I think Facebook had to triple the amount of incoming salary paid to starting employees over over that period, if not if not more now. And as a result, directly of people, you know, that moral conscience is coming up, so we need to push it down by paying you more. But I think you know, there's also different ways of viewing that. I think if if everybody who saw the social dilemma, I know you have a lot of students who listen to your podcast and, and people at universities, and if everyone who was getting a job at Facebook didn't just say, "I'm not going to take the job." but actually took the interview and challenged them in that interview to say, what are you doing to change your core business model? And if they heard that in the HR meeting when Zuckerberg and Cheryl have to sit every week or every month and say, here's the reports and what we're seeing in recruiting. And they said, everyone is asking us, when are you going to change your business model? Because you're not actually doing that. That's actually one of the most direct economic levers, absent the fact that obviously our government institutions in an ideal world would be hacking in a way to generate those incentives in a democratic way. This is sort of a hack around the brokenness of our, of our democratic environment. But I think that there are you know, government actions here. It's definitely not having whoever is sitting in the White House to regulate which speech <laughs> can and can't be said, which is what I think we, you know, to also speak to critiques we get of the film The Social Dilemma, people assume that we have this kind of... Um, I guess you could call it a more left agenda of regulating what speech can and can't be said. And it's really not about that. It's about asking what core game dynamics, what core virality logic would result in an attention commons that would be in strengthening human sense-making and human choice-making. So on a, on a daily basis, we're making better sense of the world together and making better and better choices. And the core insight in how to do that is to be aware of the kinds of human vulnerabilities and sensitivities in the same way that a magician knows about a person, and using that to the society and to the user's best interest. One of the core things you have to change to do that is to operate in more of a fiduciary model. What I mean by that is when there is asymmetries of knowledge in a discipline, like again, a lawyer knows all about the law and you don't, and then you hand that lawyer all your personal details and information, and you do so assuming that they're going to use all those personal details to help you the most. Because with that asymmetric knowledge and their about you and about the law, they could use that information to exploit you. And because of that, we have you know, the bar exams and everything else to, to try to make sure that lawyers operate on our best interests. We have the same thing with doctors. We have the same thing with therapists. And what's based, the, the condition by which we apply fiduciary laws like that is based on the asymmetric ability to influence the outcome and asymmetric knowledge involved in that relationship. In this case, social media probably knows more about you than any doctor, lawyer, or psychotherapist and is operating on an extractive business model to use whatever that information is to maximally make money from your behavior being steered one way or the other by any anonymous party, whether it's Iran or Russia or you know a regular advertiser. So one of the things that we can do is reassign that fiduciary variable, which is actually being proposed by some governments called the duty of care, 
and saying that companies actually operate and should have a duty of care to put the interests of society first. Now, how do you do that when they're a public corporation and the fiduciary variable has already been assigned to shareholders, where they're primarily responsible to shareholders and not to users? But that's one of the core things that we probably need to reform, frankly. And there's actually conversations going on actually after the social dilemma about what if instead of reporting to a board of directors, they have to report to a board of the people? Because as social utilities that make up our social infrastructure for the entire world, they have to be able to put people's interests first. They're too damaging to not do that. That would be an unprecedented global act that I am aware has never happened before. But I think we have to think more radically if we want to get to the kind of world that you know, social media is a positive, contributing, and high agency force in, in our societies. Yeah. So the fiduciary model is interesting. I, th- I think <laughs> smart people m- might not be keen on that because how are you going to define whether they're acting in your interest? It seems a bit clearer with a doctor or a lawyer, although even there, sometimes you struggle. It's like, how would we say whether Facebook has designed its product in a way that maximally benefits users or that benefits users an- enough to pass this threshold? I think often these issues of like, how would you legally define something can just be a kind of a, a deal breaker for, for some frameworks. And this seems like one where I'm just not sure how it would work. I agree. This is very difficult to say in what way would it be optimizing for the not just the user, which is an individualistic frame, but the society's interest. But one thing that we do know is that by reassigning that fiduciary variable, it in one step knocks out the advertising business model. Because it's sort of like saying a doctor or a lawyer cannot operate with the business model in which they sell all the private information that they learn about their client to the highest bidder, and they'll recommend the next surgery or medicine or legal procedure or strategy based on whoever pays them the most money. You would never allow doctors or lawyers to operate in that way. So what that does categorically is nukes the advertising model. Again, not advertising for the ad, but the relationship of using asymmetric knowledge in a manipulative or extractive fashion. And that would at least pave the road. I mean, I think of this like climate change where we need a 10-year wind-down plan from this extractive model of fossil fuels. And that's not an instant snap our fingers thing. It's a what's a transition plan thing. And we're going to have hybrid vehicles before we have fully electric vehicles. And we're going to have a bunch of mix of solar and wind before we have all nuclear. And I think we need to, in the long run, kind of wind down the advertising model. And we can also have game theoretic norms, just like we have a Geneva Convention or a START Treaty on Nuclear Weapons. I think what we need is a humane rules of engagement for an attention economy. So for example, no autoplay on any kind of service, no personalized recommendations for any political categories, always have transparency for any recommendation system. So one of the problems, as you spoke about, is we don't know how often YouTube actively recommended certain pieces of content to certain users because they are the Exxon company and the satellite company that monitors how much pollution there is. So we should have transparency. So transparency is sort of table stakes. For a more comprehensive list, by the way, on the Humane Tech website, we have a page called Policy Reforms that includes some of this, and they deal with it structurally through the lens of asymmetries of power. It's the lens we, we use to apply here. But I think when it comes to the design, you can also add things like circuit breakers or that limit virality. We've seen that recently with Twitter introducing in the retweet button, you can no longer instantly retweet or instantly reshare. You have to actually say something about what you're trying to say. And my current understanding is that that reduced the amount of resharing by something like 25% in the 20-something percent range which is a great micro-benefit because now people are not mindlessly resharing. They're only consciously resharing. We've seen the same with WhatsApp, where you know one of the things they did to reduce some of the spread of misinformation on WhatsApp, because you could share one message to 200 people instantly, is they limited sharing to five people. So I think there's things like that that are about, hey, how do we make a more humane approach to a unaccountable, non-human curated attention environment? And you know another example is just like we can say we don't drill in national parks in Alaska, although Trump is apparently overturning that right now, we can say that 
there's certain areas of the attention economy that we need to protect, like a national park. An example of this could be that the attention of underage users, you could say 13 and under or 18 and under, you should not be able to monetize the attention of people from the age of 18 and under from the hours of 10 p.m. till 7 in the morning. Because what you're essentially doing is monetizing sleeplessness and isolation and anxiety what, what, and depression. Why would that stop the kids from using it? It seems like if anything, they'd use it more because there wouldn't be any ads in the feed. But the, presumably, they're not going to actually lock them out. That feels pretty aggressive. Yeah. So I'm not saying... So that's, that's correct, that it wouldn't stop the kids from using it, but it removes the financial incentive incentives to push them to. of companies. So, so maybe, okay, correct. So maybe, so maybe they might not send notifications at that time or something like that. Or that's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, one of the simplest things, by the way, that we've said from the very beginning that would demonstrate good faith response from the companies is to, by default, batch and digest notifications. I think it was actually Peter Hartree who you know, brought us together on this podcast who makes the Chrome extension inbox one ready. And the idea that you sort of batch your looking at your email, because if you have it constantly open and it's drip by drip by drip by drip, it makes it much more addictive and distracting than if you get one big chunk at a new time. And one of the simplest things we could do in a humane rules of engagement is to batch and digest all notifications, except when an individual person actually wants your attention. Because right now, the default settings on all the social products are to do the most addictive drip by drip. You've got five new followers, five new likes, and every time you check it again, you'll see another sort of micro burst of new things. I think in the future, we're going to need to audit technology products in terms of how they actually stimulate our nervous system. This might sound more aggressive, but in the same way we have an FDA for monitoring drugs, you might have you know, some small sample of users who go into a brain scanner and you have a sense of overall in the use of a day, what aspects of the human nervous system is this product activating? And how is that lower agency for individuals? And what, is that, what are the negative impacts of there? That might sound aggressive, but when you realize that technology is getting better and better at rewarding these kinds of behaviors and more persuasive, not less and more predictive of what will influence us, not worse, you're going to need more aggressive actions that, that ask, what does it mean for a person to be making mindful, conscious choices? And how can we guarantee that technology is designed for that kind of outcome? Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I think the FDA, I worry that the drug section actually is doing harm by uh, slowing down access to, to, to products. So <laughs> I think I do in general worry that there could be like significant downside or, or unintended consequences from, from some of these policy ideas. I mean, we have to speculate a bit here because we don't know exactly what those policies might, might look like. But let's say that you did shift the charter for Facebook away from, you know, what, what it should do is try to make lots of money or at least like it should do whatever Zuckerberg says to it should do what's good for society. It really then does matter and would be a huge political football kind of who judges that, who are the regulators who say whether Facebook has acted in the best interests of society or of its users or whatever other interest group. And you could easily imagine then that this this would be used as an excuse for, for censorship or for manipulation of people in a way that that we wouldn't like. I mean, so far, I guess Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, they've been banning banning a bunch of accounts recently, closing down conspiracy groups, or at least not, not promoting them. And all of that has seemed kind of good to me. I mean, they're private companies. They don't have to be hosting crazy conspiracy groups if they don't want to. It seems seems reasonable. But at the same time, I do worry, like, if they, if they keep going further and further with this, isn't there a temptation for them to kind of start pushing their own agenda or at least slanting things in a way that isn't necessarily in the interest of society as a whole? It might be in the interest of pleasing the regulators or like doing whatever like helps them politically. And then do those regulators have our interests at heart? At, at least the goal of making maximum amount of money certainly isn't totally in line with, with what I want. But then trying to please whoever's in the White House or please whatever regulators or Congress, I'm almost more nervous about that because then you're creating a combination of government power and of corporate power that potentially they could collude to manipulate us in a way that might even result in even worse outcomes than if they're just trying to make money. Yeah, these are really great points. And 
supposedly on his bedside table, Zuckerberg has the book, The Master Switch, which is the history of telecommunications regulation. And the way you can interpret all of interactions between Facebook and the current government is in pleasing whoever the current regulators are, obviously, because they need to maintain their freedom. Their their maximum goal is protecting Facebook's self-interest and Zuckerberg's lifelong legacy of having something he's going to pass down to his daughters as the social network for the world, which means minimizing regulation, which means that if the conservatives who currently have power in the U.S. government complain of censorship or bias, you're going to bet that Facebook's going to dedicate its engineering talent to satisfy those conservative voices, even when that might be, in part, a bad faith political strategy from conservatives, as you've said, to try to make it more amenable to, to conservatives. And I say that being aware of, you know, the fact that many conservatives have rightly felt that some of the things that are getting taken down and banned tend to be more on the right-hand side of the spectrum. But I will say in the counter to that fact, that if you look at the broad, like top 10 most engaged posts on Facebook on a daily basis, about nine out of 10 tend to be for very right-leaning publications, uh, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, uh, Donald Trump for president, etc. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn that. It's, it's quite interesting that it seems like yeah, right-wing content is extremely popular on Facebook. And I guess that might help to explain some of the behavior that otherwise seems a little bit odd to me, that they're, they're making a whole lot of money out of it. And they have there's an interest group that's, that's ensuring that, that that stuff doesn't get downgraded in the newsfeed. And yeah, that's right. And so, but as you said, it puts us in a weird double bind because it actually comes down to a crisis of trust. Do you trust Mark Zuckerberg to make the best decisions on behalf of us or on trying to satisfy the current regulators? Do you trust the regulators and the government that we happen to have elected? And as you said, there's a strong incentive for Facebook to say, hmm, which of the upcoming politicians have the most pro-tech policies? And then we'll just like invisibly tilt the scales towards all those politicians, which you know, I, I think people need to get that Facebook is a voting machine and voting machines are regulated. It's just that it's an indirect voting machine because it controls the information supply that goes into what everyone will vote on. And just like if I'm a private you know, entrepreneur, I can't just create an LLC for a new voting machine company and just place them around society. We actually have rules and regulations about how voting machines need to work so that they're fair and honest and so on. And obviously, we enter to another paradox where if we want Facebook to really be trustworthy, it should probably have completely transparent algorithms in which everyone can see that there's no bias. But once they make those algorithms transparent, there'll be maximum incentive to game those algorithms and point AIs at literally simulating every possible way to game that system, which is why we have to be really careful and thoughtful about what is really, I think, at, at this converse, at the heart of this conversation is what is the new basis of what makes something in this position, a technology company, with all of this asymmetric knowledge, data, and collective understanding of 3 billion people's identities, beliefs, and behaviors, what would make anyone in that position a trustworthy actor? Would you trust a single human being with the knowledge of the psychological vulnerabilities and automated predictability of 3 billion human social animals? On what conditions would someone be trustworthy? I think that's a very interesting philosophical question. Usually answers like transparency, accountability, oversight are, are at least pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, it seems like yeah, we're in a very difficult spot here. <laughs> None of the solutions, well, like all of the solutions seem tricky. But how much discussion does Zuckerberg have over what Facebook does? Because as I understand it, he owns a majority of the voting shares. So if he, if he says, we're actually going to like sacrifice some revenue here for some other goal, can he do that? Yes, that's actually one of the unique things about Facebook's stock structure is that he has he has a super sort of, I forgot what they call it, but he basically has control over the company, regardless of if there's a majority shareholder view that he needs to be replaced even. Obviously, like anything, it comes down to trust because with someone in that position, they could be a benevolent dictator and use it to totally, upon seeing all these things, say, my goal and my legacy is to transform Facebook away from all the problems that we now know to be existing. And he could actually do that, even if it would result 
in far less money and revenue because he has this unique unilateral control. The problem is that so long as Zuckerberg is in denial about some of these core issues, he will not make that choice. And I actually know several, you know, you asked about theories of change and other strategies beyond employee pressure and recruiting pressure. One of the other strategies that has been tried is shareholder pressure. And there have been shareholder resolutions attempting to get Facebook to take much more radical action, but they failed exactly because of the fact that he has this special voting influence. Yeah. So one argument that Zuckerberg has made in the past is that we shouldn't be trusting the management of Facebook to decide what ideas get promoted I'm sympathetic to that. Or yeah, I obviously feel very nervous about that. I guess one middle ground might be that you can say whatever you want, even if Facebook thinks it's a conspiracy and it's a bad idea. However, Facebook does have the discretion to say what ideas are going to be promoted into the newsfeed. Do you think you could get some mileage there where that might both appease the free speech people? Because in, in practice, they're not being prevented from saying something. It's just that Facebook is tipping, putting its thumb on the scale of what content they think warrants promotion. And, and in fact, there's no way out of that because they have to choose among stuff. They're, they're choosing on some basis. Why not choose based on like whether they think it's true as like one factor, at least, rather than just like, does this make people angry or does this cause people to click and so on? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now with regard to the U.S. elections, where Facebook and Twitter took very aggressive strategies in saying that the results of the election are not yet called. And they basically coordinated, not in the sense of who they wanted to win the election, but they coordinated to make sure that there was no articles definitively claiming a result or victor of the election until a majority of news outlets had had done so. The problem is, again, who do you trust? Because one of the challenges we face is that when you have a president who asserts that the entire voting elections are illegitimate, and typically the president carries with him or her incredible authority and the maximal authority, we're not used to presidents that assert things without any basis of facts. It may be the case, as has been the case here, that you can find evidence of some small amounts of voter fraud or uh, delegitimacy after the fact, but you have to ask, is this a good faith attempt to discover the truth? Or is this simply a political claim to do that? Can you think of any changes that they could make that would be good for politics or good for users, good for the world, that wouldn't cost them anything, like wouldn't actually cost them any revenue, or like might even make them more money? Are there any win-wins here that wouldn't require a deeper structural change? You know, Rob, that's such a good question. I want to say that to, to give the folks at Facebook credit, they have made many changes that have actually decreased revenue and decreased engagement for the good of lowering addiction or decreasing political polarization. I mean, even Twitter, for example, Jack Dorsey chose in October 2019 last year that he was going to ban political advertising on Twitter. And you can choose to make a decision like that. And yes, you're going to hurt revenue, but really it's actually a small percentage of revenue, which Facebook is keen to point out. Um, I think it's something only like 1% of Facebook's revenue. However, 1% is in the billions and billions of dollars. And there's arguments about, again, political advertising actually enabling the opposite of the incumbents, the newcomers, to actually win an election, as opposed to if you didn't have political advertising, you just reward the incumbents through the asymmetry of existing power structures. When it comes to, you know, what could they do? This is really hard. I think we have to ask ourselves, what would be a safe set of rules for all of us to play by? Which is why I go back to, is a unchecked virality model where anyone can say anything? In fact, good good faith and bad faith actors cannot be distinguished. And generally, bad faith actors will outcompete good faith actors because the space of possible speech utterances that are false is infinite. And the space of speech utterances that are true is very limited. An unconstrained actor is going to outcompete constrained actors in the form of putting speech out there. And I think the thing that you pointed out, Rob, is that what we've done is we have to distinguish between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. 
because there's a difference between being able to post any piece of text or content versus having some kind of God-given right to a football stadium-sized audience. And typically, when it comes to any technology, the greater the power, the greater the responsibility and accountability that we, we also couple with that power. So I can go buy a pair of kitchen knives without getting a background check or showing an ID from a kitchen store. But if I want to buy a gun, I usually have to do either a background check, show my driver's license and ID, so that I'm a valid U.S. citizen, and possibly even get training for how to use a gun. Whereas in this case, I think we have not actually treated social media broadcast as a form of dangerous weapon that actually has exponential psychological influence capacities. A 15-year-old with their Instagram account can reach 10 million people. And that 15-year-old is not operating on journalistic ethics, fact-checking, accountability, or issuing corrections when she makes a mistake. So again, I think part of what we need here is a new, almost like broadcasting standard, which we used to have, by the way. We used to have Saturday morning cartoon protections. We used to have a fairness doctrine for political speech. I think one research question for the audience of people listening to you here is what would a fairness doctrine look like for a networked information ecology? You know, how could these platforms prove that there's more of a fair, you know, not just once I go a little bit to the right, it sends me further to the right, or I go a little bit to the left, it goes further to the left. But when I go to the right, it shows me a constructive counterargument to what I've just seen, not a cynical deconstructive counterargument, which is one of the problems of supposedly best solution to speech is counter speech in a, in a limited attention economy you cannot depend on people having an infinite set of counter speech they're going to be looking at. So we also need to enrich context. I think one of my favorite phrases is from Brewster Kale, who runs the Internet Archive, that the best solution to free speech is better context. Because in in an environment where attention and conscious energy is limited, meaning people are not going to spend days and weeks reading books and relitigating every single topic and whether the the climate CO2 hypothesis is actually fully legitimate or do we want to relitigate that, we need better ways of building on top of the shoulders of giants and coming to establish truths than building on them as opposed to relitigating everything. And that's one of my concerns is how do we have a sense-making environment more like Wikipedia, which I would call more of a humane technology because it provides more of a ground to stand on instead of trying to relitigate every possible view. Yeah, let me put two things to you. So, so one thing, yeah, it was very interesting that Twitter just basically said no political advertising, sorry. Given that it's only 1% of advertising revenue, maybe that does make a whole lot of sense though, because that's the thing that's bringing them so much grief in the public debate. And that one of the things that people have the most policy concern about, and they're like, well, this is a threat to our whole business and it's only 1% of the money anyway. So let's just sell cars and socks and stuff. <laughs> that would kind of make sense. And right. so it's possible that Facebook should should follow that lead. Although I guess, as you point out, is like, is that good? Is that bad? Maybe it's, it's complicated because you also want people to be able to share political views that maybe people don't already believe. But another one is, I know plenty of people who've largely just stopped using Facebook. And one of the reasons is that they didn't think it was enhancing their life, all things considered. So you could imagine a world where Facebook designs this thing to be extremely engaging in the short term. And that does work to boost engagement in the short term. But then people like they're reflecting on New Year's Day or just before New Year's and they're like, you know, I don't think Facebook's really benefiting me. I'm going to like start using this a whole lot less. And then they successfully do it because it's addictive, but it's not so addictive that you can't break the, the habit if, you, if you're really committed to it. And so maybe it is in Facebook's interest to develop a product that does cause people to on reflection and think, yeah, this has made my life better. And it's made me, it's informed me. It hasn't just like caused me to get, to get angry. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any thoughts well, on that? Yeah. I mean, those are, those are great examples. And I love you pointing out that when Twitter chose to ban political advertisement, however much lost revenue that might have amounted to on their balance sheet, it probably resulted in a net gain in terms of reducing the alternative of that much money's worth of political and PR damage to the company because of the the controversy that's intrinsic to enabling political advertising. And I do think we need to ask questions about what kinds of categories are safe 
to enable this kind of thing. For example, small, medium-sized business advertising is probably is actually a fuel for the economy. This is one of the things, if I'm making Facebook's points for them about why advertising is so necessary, which I'm willing to do, is that actually even after COVID, one of the best ways to reboot an economy is for small, medium-sized businesses to be able to retarget their customers with email micro-targeting and get them to buy things that they have forgotten about. And Facebook is the infrastructure for rebooting an economy. Now, I'm making a very strong positive argument for for Facebook in that. (laughs) Now, the thing that people have to get is that what makes these companies so profitable is the kind of black box automation of the entire system. So the fact that it's any advertiser can micro-target to any message and can split test any variation without human oversight, without the fact that I have to hire advertising standards people or editors or curators or journalists or advertisers, because I don't have to pay people, that's what makes the model so profitable. So as we limit the categories in which we're enabling them to do that and say, hey, you can only do that for non-political ads and for small, medium-sized business merchandise, so you only have physical products that you're allowed to advertise to, that would make for a much safer ecosystem. And the second example you gave of Facebook benefiting in the long run from not burning out users from addiction and then having these negative thoughts on New Year's Day, they've actually done that too. That's been part of the argument that in which they responded and actually made our phrase and our work originally came from this concept called time well spent. That's actually where I met your colleague, Peter Hartree, because the notion is that time is the denominator upon which all of these goods and bads is taking place. And a world in which they maximize time but it's not time well spent. It's time that feels empty or regretful afterwards. Is not the same as a time well spent environment, which everything is competing to have lastingly fulfilling and lastingly informed and lastingly beneficial benefits. And that's the whole premise of, of kind of what that change was about. So I think they've already made those arguments. I think the problem is when it comes to these sort of social benefits, where you talk about social cohesion, joint attention, unlikely consensus. I want to point people to the work of Digital Minister of Taiwan, Audrey Tang who actually has the best working example that I know of, of a digital democracy in which Taiwan bolts on this digital infrastructure on top for digital deliberation of what policies changes that they want to see as a country and have really fast 24-hour cycles that give people the real sense that the government is listening to them, it's accountable to them, and they can see real examples of change. And they, they, they had one of the best responses to coronavirus under the threat of China's massive disinformation campaigns that are thrown at at Taiwan. So I think it really is one of the best examples to hold up. And I recommend people check out our interview with Audrey Tang on our podcast called Your Undivided Attention as well. Yeah, they they were also on uh, Conversations with Tyler. It was a fascinating interview. Uh, Really, I have to to look more into, into their work. Just to give listeners some sense of the structure of the conversation, I'm just still on trying to find what are the, what's to be done because I'm so confused about it. I'm just fumbling around trying to consider all the options. You're just mentioning that there's been successes, that these companies have changed in a bunch of different ways. Maybe that's one way that we can figure out a path ahead is just to look at the past successes and say, let's do more of that. So maybe like what, what, have, what have been the big wins over the last five or, five or 10 years? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's many of them, I think. And they're happening across all the different aspects. So they're also happening culturally. You know, for example, when we made the film, The Social Dilemma, there were not many people actually speaking out saying there's a problem here, many insiders. I was one of probably five people, and they're mostly in that film. Now there's many, many, many more insiders that are speaking out about the problem, and that also is accelerating. And I would say that's a positive change because it forces more change to happen. One of the best product examples is the one that everyone now has in their own hand, which is the Apple screen time and digital well-being features. Now, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny baby step in the right direction because this is really not the kind of solution that we really need. But the fact that we could prove that a cultural movement called time well spent and raising awareness about that problem could convince, you know, the handful of 50 designers at Apple 
to ship on more than a billion phones and Macs, by the way, because now screen time is built into every Mac, a system that lets you see how much time you're spending on various products and against their business interest of maximizing engagement because Apple's business model is actually not based on advertising or engagement. One of the other positive elements on the Apple side is actually decreasing the profitability of personalized advertising. Because one of the things that Apple's been able to do just recently in iOS 14 is remove the personalization cues. They now make it an option. When you open an app, it will say, I think starting in January, actually, it's shipping a little bit late. Do you want to let this app track you? And of course, everyone's going to say no. And what that does is it reduces the profitability of the advertising-based business model by something like 30%. So that's like a carbon tax on the kind of perverse extractive business model that we want. And that's being implemented at the Apple level. So if I want to give people some hope, I think we should look to Apple and Google as regulators of the attention economy. And what people are not going to like about that is that we're relying on the moral compass of two additional private corporations that are maximizing shareholder value to try to get them to do positive things. But they do respond, I think, to public pressure. And I think we should ask, is there a way that Apple and Google can provide incentives in the forms of taxes and subsidies for more humane technology that is sensitive to all these psychological vulnerabilities and taxes applications based on some of the balance sheet of harms that we've been talking about over the last two hours? And you can imagine the app store is currently the, you know, the, the revenue flows are like the federal reserve of this huge multi-billion dollar app store economy. And if you know, Rob, that there's a 70-30 split. So revenue from the app developer keeps 70%, Apple keeps 30%. And you can imagine them actually piping that down or including an additional tax based on, let's say, how much distraction or how much polarization or how much mental health harm are you, are you adding to the balance sheet of society? What you then get into, again, is the issue of incommensurability and how do we really measure those effects in a concrete way. But you could have subjective assessments that would you know, amount to some of those incentives being accelerated. And the cool thing about Apple and Google is that they can make those changes on a yearly basis. So next year, as soon as you know, September or October of 2021, we could have some of these more radical changes that are built directly into their, their incentive scheme. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I really, I'm glad I'm not the bureaucrat trying to figure out which apps to subsidize and which ones to tax. That seems like a tricky job. But that raises the general issue that some companies, because they run on subscriptions, they have more reason to try to convince you that it's worth paying for this service and that it's good for your life, all things considered. And not and to like minimize the amount of time you use it rather than maximize it in, like, in, in, Apple, in Apple's case, potentially. And Netflix, I guess some people get addicted to Netflix. It has its issues. But I think also because it runs on a subscription model, it's less exploitative what's users or I feel like they face less cases where there's trade-off between what's good for their money and like what's what users are going to enjoy. Is there any hope for a subscription-based model for, I guess, more Google products like YouTube or or Facebook or, or, or Twitter that would realign their incentives? Because, I mean, I guess we just don't know how these products might have evolved in quite a different direction if their goal had been to convince people that Facebook was worth paying $100 a year for. Yeah, I think th- this is exactly right. I mean, we're already seeing a trend towards more subscription-oriented business relationships. I mean, the success of Patreon, where people are directly funded by their audience. Recently, Substack, you have many more journalists that are leaving their mainstream publications and having a direct relationship with their readers being paid directly through you know subscription. And you also have, by the way, more humane features in Substack. They let you actually, for example, as a writer, pause and say, hey, I'm not going to write for the next two weeks. And it'll actually proportionally discount the amount of subscription fees according to letting the the author be live in a more humane way and have these breaks. So we're not creating these inhumane systems that are infinitely commoditizing and atomizing of treating people as, as transactional artifacts. So those are some really exciting trends. And I actually have heard that Twitter might be looking into a subscription-based business model as a result of reacting to the social dilemma. I think what we need, though, is a public movement for that. And you can imagine 
categorically, and this would be a very aggressive act, but what if Congress said we are not allowing a micro-targeting, behavioral targeting-based advertising model for any large social media platform that once you reach a certain size, you, you are required to shift over into a subscription. Now, people don't like that, again, because you end up with the inequality issues that some people can afford it and others cannot. But we can also, just as we've done during COVID, treat some of these things as essential services so that much like during COVID, PG&E and your electricity and basic services are forced to remain on even if you can't pay your bills. And I think we could ask, how do we subsidize it, the basic version for the, for the masses, and then have paid versions where the incentives are directly aligned. And I want to say one more thing about this, which is what change in culture this would create for engineers working at the tech companies. Because I think that the demoralizing effect of people saying, I'm going to work to get people to click on ads and click on clickbait every day, that's not a very exciting mission. Whereas if you really turn the table around and say the customer is the user and the society and improving their life and giving them agency over meaningful things that they can change, that's an exciting thing to go do and work at Facebook, right? Or if I want to actually also improve social outcomes, one other scheme, Rob, is if you have um, governments become the customers of social media and they say, hey, Facebook and and, uh, Google and YouTube, we're going to pay you to advance certain social outcomes, let's say climate change and accelerating actions, not just content or awareness, but actually to the extent that you can help enable more shifts towards climate-friendly policies, we're going to subsidize and pay you for that benefit. And I think that that's what we have to see is that these platforms are really the social organs for governments because they are, or for an entire society. And that means that the customer isn't just the individual user paying with their credit card. It's actually the the entire society and government that wants to see their society improved. And I want to say also that I've never been more hopeful that at least if we have a Biden administration, as opposed to the current Trump administration, which I don't think would tackle any of these issues or would do so in a way that people wouldn't trust, I'm really hoping that this may provide some opening for how we tackle these issues at a systemic level. And I will say Andrew Yang, when he ran for president, actually said he would create a department of the attention economy at the White House level to engage with these issues in an ongoing way and convene conversations about how do we accelerate these changes and reduce the harms that we've been talking about. Yeah. There's something very odd about the advertising model, or that just strikes me as perverse, which is that if you look at how much money they're making from users per hour of engagement, it's really a pittance. We're talking like tens of cents for like an hour that you spend on Facebook if you're a US user. And so if you think like, wouldn't I rather buy them out to like have my interests at heart or like to try to make the product nice to me? And all I'd have to do was pay them 10 or 20 cents an hour. And, you know, most like even someone making minimum wage might be interested enough. And you face this with with TV as well. Like someone someone watching television. I think I I tried to calculate how much are people paid per hour of ads that they watch when they're uh, in terms of like the programming. So how much revenue are they gaining? I can't remember. I can't remember here. But again, I think it was like tens of cents like per hour of like watching ads. And there's something so odd that you would never let someone boss you around or tell you what to do for so little money. And yet, because you're not quite aware of how the way that your time is being shaped by the fact that you haven't paid for the service and, and you're not given the option to opt out. Yeah, it's a, there's something just like fundamentally odd. Totally. Well, I think what you you just hit the nail on the head on, on a couple of fronts because you also mentioned it's just how invisible the coercion is. I and mean, we, we started this conversation by talking about can people really be persuaded? But it's not, again, persuasion for the advertisement. It's, it's the constant micro nudges and behavioral coercion that drives people into these addictive and distracting kind of behaviors. And if you said, hey, you're going to get 50% of your life back because when you enter into these environments, these digital habitats, they're not going to be adversarially designed at every step of the move. And again, I think that would be so much more inspiring as a technologist to go to work and say, how do we improve people's lives? You know, I I just want to say I grew up in the age of the Macintosh. I was born in 1984. 
And I, you know, grew up thinking that technology would be an empowering tool, a bicycle for the mind, something that was a creative canvas to invent. I did lots of programming, you know, and, and in those days when you made software, you made software to empower people. You made software to give people some new capacity, some new tool. And you could go home saying, look at all the people's lives that are now doing something creative and productive. And I think that YouTube, for example, if I want to be kind and charitable to them, is like the best resource for how-to videos and do-it-yourself anything it's that you would ever find. I was learning about how thorium molten salt reactors work on the weekend and like YouTube, just incredible resources there for nothing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, you can imagine YouTube could also instrument economies. So, you know, for those who are now yoga teachers who don't get to have yoga studios or classes that are online, they could instrument ways that, hey, for every person who sees that yoga class, they could be paid a dollar. You know, would you donate a dollar as a, as a viewer to enable a new economy for people's lives to be improved? So now if I work at YouTube, I get to measure the, my success in the terms of net positive new hours created in people's lives, because I can look at how-to videos, learning videos, educational videos, yoga classes, you know, do-it-yourself projects, and I can literally measure my success in terms of life impact. And again, what you would need for that is for YouTube to not be game-theoretically caught in this race to the bottom of the brainstem for autoplaying broadcast-like television, because YouTube's biggest competitor is now TikTok. I've actually been told that I think TikTok has been consuming a lot of the young people's attentional time because when you open up TikTok, it doesn't even wait for you to click on a video. It actually starts autoplaying the second you open the app. And it actually shows you the next video, the next video, the next video. And again, what we need to make this change is to, to really kind of change the fundamental paradigm that none of these social media services that live on a smartphone should be based on broadcast, or at least there should be a different choice architecture for entering into a broadcast mode. Because then our computers would, and our devices would feel much less distracting and much less adversarial to our daily interests. Okay, let me, let me push back for a minute. So I guess, yeah, whenever I hear about like a ministry of attention or, and I always just think like, what are we going to do when we have like a really bad president or a really bad government? Like involving involving government in like how people spend their time in, in, in that level or like what information they're exposed to just like always always gives me the creeps. But maybe, maybe we've already talked about that a bit. In terms of, like, I guess the, the subscription model it seems like, well, it like might be good for many users, perhaps for me, it probably isn't going to happen because they're, they're caught in a bunch of different sides, at least Facebook is. One where people who have high incomes are the ones who'd be most willing to pay for the subscription, but they're also the most valuable to advertise to. So you then want to have different prices for people based on like how rich they are and how valuable they are as advertising targets. And people hate the differential pricing. Maybe they'll accept differential pricing in different countries that have very different income levels, but differential pricing for, for different people seems tough. And then also, if I'm, say, one of the, like the 10% that decide, no, I want the subscription model, I want like the, the product that so it's my interest uh, rather than like tilting it towards advertisers. Are they really going to design, redesign Facebook as a whole, like the whole ecosystem in order to make it kind of more humane just for the minority of people who subscribe? You kind of need everyone to switch over, but then many people don't want to pay for that and they'd worry about the network effect breaking because like lots of people just opt out because they can't be bothered paying the $100 a year. Yeah, I just, there's something there, but I, but I worry that it's not actually viable as a, as a business model, that it's not going to happen. Yeah, no, you're bringing up such great points. I mean, one is that obviously each user is worth different amounts to Facebook. And in fact, the ones who, as you said, would be most likely to pay are the ones who have the most money, but it also <laughs> costs them more because you or yeah. I are probably worth, you know, many more times than, than the average user. You also have the problem of the fact that um, this is actually important. We were talking earlier about in the global South, how they have much heightened versions of these problems because they have fewer content models moderators who speak that language. And one of the things people should know is that, you know, the value of a, of a Myanmar user is very little to Facebook, right? I mean, it's like, pe- you know, pe- pennies. And yet, you know, the cost of actually supporting that user in, in any of these new users, this is really important, even according to Facebook's own logic. Think about the cost of bringing on a new American user to Facebook. It's like negligible. They already have the English language content moderators. They already built the classifiers to detect, you know, hate speech, et cetera. They already, you know, have all that infrastructure. 
But if I'm bringing on a new user in Ethiopia speaking one of the minority dialect languages, the cost of bringing on the rest of Facebook's user base that has not yet come online is going to get higher per user as opposed to lower. So what that means is that we're going to have more chaos in the next set of users that come online than for the users that are in the West. That's a really important point if you care about sort of a John Rawlsian view of how do we how does Facebook treat the worst off in its sort of meta society of its digital infrastructure. But I think getting back to your point, you could imagine some kind of fair pricing scheme that tries to tier it. Uh, so you can imagine tiered pricing or trying to equalize the distribution so you don't have mass variability in kind of how much your people are paying for the product. And I think I think that's, those are all really, really good areas to explore. My, my colleague, James Williams, who was my collaborator on the first time I'll spent work, who was at University of Oxford, wrote a paper called Why It's Okay to Block Ads. And, and there's this notion of should using an ad blocker be a human right where we can simply choose to not see the ads? Or is that fundamentally something that is essentially stealing because they actually need that and it's worth money to them? So should we be paying our way out of our attentional serfdom and our attentional slavery? Just like a, a, what do they call it in in the movement against slavery where you self-purchase agreements or we're self-purchasing our attention and our agency back? Or should we have a standard where it works that way? And one comparable example I was going to mention is uh, Diet Coke. Because in that case, you have the race to the bottom towards high fructose corn syrup amongst all the soda providers. There is an incentive to produce the cheapest thing. But if you can create enough collective awareness and people care enough, then you can have a diet version that then sells for more. But as you said, you really want the majority of Facebook's incentives to be on that side of the equation, not some tiny minority. And I believe that even as of a few years ago, the organic food market is, is something like 3% of the overall market for food. So we face this problem with a values-blind economic system that is not privileging the kinds of values that we need unless you get kind of a oomph and a little nudge and support from maybe government policy. Yeah. I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to talk about ads because I've managed to almost completely cut them out of my life. I, I went back and looked at, I think Facebook keeps a record of what, what ads you'd clicked and I hadn't clicked a single Facebook ad going back to the time that they started keeping records. I think, yeah, maybe this is a good way to talk about like well stuff that people can do on a personal level before we get a more systematic solution to this. Personally, I basically never look at the newsfeed on Twitter or Facebook. I've blocked them on my on my laptop. I don't know my password for these services and I don't have the apps on my phone, so I can't log into them on my phone. Uh, so I can only kind of access them on my computer. And then I've got these like extensions that, that block the... <laughs> I can see, no, it's not It's not addictive. I've managed to work on it just fine <laughs> using all of these crazy systems. Do you? What do you use to hide the newsfeed in Twitter? I'm not aware of what's in the oh, newsfeed. I think it's, it's something where the app is designed to reward you with the newsfeed once you've finished a task. But I just never click to finish any tasks. So it just like blocks it always. I, I'll, I'll stick up a link to all of this stuff. Maybe I'll should write up a, a few notes on this and listeners can go and look at it uh, if, they, if they like. I also set up, I've also got this uh, app called Freedom, which can block internet access to particular websites. So uh, if you particularly need to, to break an addiction that, you, that you've got to a website at a particular time. Basically, then as a result, well, on Facebook, I basically only engage with the posts that I myself write, which is a bit of an unusual way of using it. As a result, I basically never see ads. On Twitter, because I can't use the newsfeed, I have to say, I really want to read like Matthew Iglesias' tweets right now. And then I go to Matthew's page and, and read through them. So it's a bit more of an intentional thing. And it means that they run out because I get to the bottom. I'm like, well, I've read all those tweets. Oh, another thing is I stopped back in 2016. It was, a, it was a difficult political time, listeners. And I got like very hooked on reading about politics stuff that would make me very angry. And I just realized that it was uh, really depressing me. And so I started basically just having a rule that I don't follow people who write too much, at least like certainly not angry political content. So yeah, while I feel like in a sense, I'm now okay with social media, I have done a lot of work over time to kind of like find a way of making it manageable and and not too bad. I'm curious to know whether you have any advice for, for users on things that they could do that they might not know that, that could help them use their use. Their time better in a similar way. Yeah, well, 
I love these examples that you're, you're mentioning. And I, I think also what it highlights, obviously, is we don't want a world where only the micro few, you know, know how to download the exact Chrome extensions and set up the password protecting hacks. And, you know, it's sort of like saying we're going to build a nuclear power plant in your town. And if there's a problem, you have to get your own hazmat suit. You know, we don't want a world where the Chrome extensions we add are our own personal hazmat suits. And it's sort of like with COVID. I mean, I don't understand why, for example, vitamin D, zinc, is a th- you know, and um, vitamin C and quercetin and bromelain are not just the common recommendations for everyone. Like, why isn't that, why don't we have the common precautions be standard kind of recommendations for the world and make that the thing that's best for everyone, the default setting? And this is kind of a Rawlsian view of how do we make this work for everyone as opposed to, you know, who knows the secret to be a little bit less addicted. And increasingly, you know, there's a cognitive inequality too, where, you know, some who can afford or know or have the inside knowledge will have greater competitive capacity in a society because they're able to hold and manage their attention better than, than those who are left with the default setting. So I just want to say that first before we really get into a more egalitarian you know, view of what can people do. We have a page on our website called Take Control um, on humanetech.com where I really recommend people check out some of those tools. You know, it starts with, first of all, an awareness that all this is happening, which might sound like a throwaway statement to make, but you can't change something if you don't care about changing it. And I think people need to make a real commitment to themselves and saying, what am I really committed to changing about my use of technology? And I think once you make that commitment, then it means something when you say, I'm going to turn off notifications. And what I mean by that is really radically turning off all notifications, except when a human being wants your attention. Because one of the things is that most of the notifications on our phones seem like they're human beings who want to reach us because it says that these three people commented on your post. But in fact, those are invented by those AI's machines to try to, you know, lure you back into another addictive spiral. And so I think, you know, that's that's one thing. I mean, you've already mentioned some of these Chrome extensions, deleting things off your phone, the apps, changing the login information so you don't know the password. I think those are great. I think when I think about the sense-making environment, reducing the outrageification of who we're following. So I look at most, you know, news sources have devolved into outrage media, the left and the right, you know, so MSNBC, Fox News, Gateway Pundit, these things are mostly created to create outrage. And I think it'd be nice if there was almost a social shaming mechanism so that built on the top of everyone's profile, there was some notion of how much of what you're looking at news-wise is sort of outrage media. And there's a sense that we don't want to be seen as, you know, consuming that stuff. I think what we also need is to ask who are the most sort of transcendent and include, you know, dialectic-based thinkers that we find on the internet. You know, ironically, I probably wouldn't show up that way because people view me as a more one-sided figurehead for the problems of technology. But I think that each of us could probably point to people who are constructively looking at, you know, argument, counter-argument, and synthesis. And I think that if we had some mechanism for asking who are those voices and how do we reward them with more attention and more of our attention, I think those are, those are great tips. I mean, this goes on for, forever because there's so many different things that people can do. And again, I recommend people check out you know, our website, humanetech.com, take control. Yeah, interesting. I worry that I feel like to some extent I can get away with this because other people aren't doing it. If other people started doing this, then I suppose the economic logic would be that they'd have to find a way to stop you from doing it. So I guess we've seen this a little bit with with Reddit, which I like use on, I don't have the app. I just use it in the browser and I have an ad blocker. They're now like trying to force you to use the app basically and make it almost impossible to access any of the content on your phone without the app. Because then of course they're, they're, you're within their system. <laughs> totally. And we're think- seeing the same thing with ad blockers where it used to be that you could just do an ad blocker. And now actually, you know, because enough people are doing it, you go to any website, site, they'll detect that you're using an ad blocker and ask, do you want to pay a subscriber fee to access our content? And so I actually, I actually feel fair game to them there. I mean, if you're a writer and you're like, well, I make my money through advertising and you you're not, haven't bought a subscription. So if you don't want to see the ads and you should buy a subscription and otherwise you can't see the stuff, I guess, I don't know. It seems 
it's inconvenient, but I can under, like maybe that that kind of nudge towards a subscription system is the way we want to go. In the long run, I do think that, and I also think that actors like Apple or Google, which are sort of central traffic points, could be better at instrumenting the subscription-based business model. We didn't talk about that, but you know, they, they could make it much easier to even have like a monthly budget of, let's say, $25 a month or something, which gets allocated to the applications that are you know, in a subscription-oriented way, the ones you use the most and help you the most on retrospect. And so money is flowing directly based on retrospective views of what was helpful and helped us spend our time in the ways that was fulfilling and constructive and high agency, as opposed to having it be spent coupled directly with uh, time spent or engagement. Yeah. What do you worry most about being wrong about? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I'm certainly self-critical about, I'll say this in the abstract first, one of my worries about the attention economy is it's very easy to get a false sense that you're right, no matter what you're coming from. Because the audience of people listening is so vast, everyone can get kind of captured by their audience for the perspective that they end up taking, right? So there's going to be people who are, as I already know, there's critics of mine who are very pro-technology and techno-utopian and techno-libertarian, and they get rewarded by their audience the more they say that blockchain is going to save the world and AI is great and we just need to build more and faster and deregulate everything. And they get infinite evidence of positive social feedback for those statements, just as I get evidence and for positive social feedback by those who you know appeal to what I'm believing. So what I worry about to answer your question is any kind of self-delusion. I mean, I think we need to be always aware and asking with beginner's mind, you know, how would I know that I'm wrong? And it's tricky, especially because in our work, the issues are changing day to day and week to week. And YouTube has taken large actions in English, by the way, for the most part, to reduce some of the borderline content and conspiracy sort of radicalizing issues that have come up. And just to make sure I defend my reputation a bit here, most of the things that we said and filmed in The Social Dilemma were filmed in the beginning of 2018, when almost no one was talking about these issues and before they had been adequately dealt with. And so what people might see as hyperbole is actually maybe a misunderstanding of the film production process and how long it takes to get these issues out there. And again, the level of concern comes from just how few people were honestly appraising these issues well and minimizing them as, oh, like addiction doesn't seem that bad or, oh, distraction doesn't seem that bad. But it's this sort of death by a thousand cuts of the kind of breakdown of these, these social organs that I think people needed to get. So I don't have a specific thing that I'm, I'm worried about getting wrong. It's just more broadly, I think I, I always try to figure out what's really true here and making sure I'm not deluding myself. Yeah. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is, well, I guess back in 2015, 16, when I was feeling like using social media was damaging my well-being, I saw there's a bunch of preliminary research which suggested that use of social media or using social media a lot was associated with an unhappiness or depression or possibly suicide, anxiety, that kind of thing. And I share a bunch of those studies. It seems like over, over the years, as more has come in and maybe the, the quality of the research has gotten a bit better, it seemed like the effect sizes perhaps have gotten closer to zero or like the, the, the studies have become more equivocal. There's some that suggest it has an effect on well-being and some suggest, that suggest that it doesn't. And maybe I, I slightly worry that I jumped the gun on that based on my personal experience. And perhaps Facebook for most people just doesn't make a huge difference to, to, to their experience of life. Do you, do you have any sense on where the research stands there? I know this isn't your area, area of expertise in particular, but... Yeah, I, I really point to Jonathan Haidt's research here because he's the one who did kind of the meta-analysis of especially those counter views by Orban and, and Shabalsky, I think is the name. He's better equipped to speak to, I think, some of the limits of those studies on especially young or adolescent mental health, especially teenage girls 10 to 14. The thing that seems to be jumping out of the data is teenage girls 10 to 14 tend to have the most trouble. I mean, essentially, when you are saying who you are is how you look. And we only like you if you look different than you actually do. And you have a system of media that privileges the visual 
form of identity. For teenage girls, this is a damaging thing to be constantly under the sort of surveillance. I mean, it's already bad enough being a kid, but, you know, everyone is talking about now how, you know, their daughters, I think Joe Rogan was even speaking about this on another episode I listened to before I went on his podcast that he showed his guest a picture of his, I think, 14-year-old daughter and said, my daughter looks like she's 20 years old in this photo. And it's because social media has not just created these beautification filters, but actually has created the incentive by which we have now created a social modeling function where identity and the, the identities and the looks that we appeal to are these completely unrealistic standards and we're exposing younger and younger children to them. And I care a lot about how this affects kids. I, I grew up in a very, I felt like a balanced environment and I grew up with Saturday morning cartoons. And I use that example a lot because, you know, I think whether it's Mr. Rogers or if you haven't seen the film, Won't You Be My Neighbor about Mr. Rogers, you, you get a sense for how differently we treated the development of childhood thinking and brains back then. I mean, the shot length was incredibly long. You have these images of children in awe and in slow motion, really responding and hanging on every word to what he's saying. And the lessons are about basic kind of compassion and goodness, and not just sort of who's the most famous starting at age 10 years old. And I think that, you know, the the incentives for these companies is to go earlier and earlier into the lives of children and to colonize them. Because just like Coca-Cola wanted to get you hooked to you know, Gatorade or Coca-Cola early so they could get you later on the other things. Or just like Camel Cigarettes invented the avatars of the cartoon Camel to get kids before they, so that was a, you know, getting them early in the pipeline of their later adulthood. We're now seeing TikTok and Facebook and Snapchat in this race to the bottom for an earlier and earlier initial entry point into this, again, fundamentally misaligned environment. So again, I look at this zooming out as what is the effect of this in the long term overall? And why are people's own intuitions that this doesn't make them feel good? I, you know, I think a film that's a documentary film on Netflix does not go viral to 40 million people in 28 days by accident. You know, it does that because I think people resonate with this is their own experience. And I, as much as there's many people who might critique, you know, things that they disagree with, I think the broad strokes of, of what is being outlined is, is really urgent. And yeah, I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. There's this question of, I guess, yeah, what effect is the internet having on, on kids' development and what effect is it having on well-being would be a three-hour conversation itself. I'll, I'll link to some of the some of the best papers I found when I was when I was looking into this. It seems like, I suppose, the social scientists are having a big, uh, they're kind of duking it out in the in, in the papers and in the and in the blogs at the moment. So it's quite an interesting debate to follow. And it, it does seem like the, the research is, is, is coming along. We have we have a lot better, I think, evidence. So we've got like better data sets than we did, did five years ago. So hopefully we'll, we'll get some clarity clarity on that in time. I guess we've only got a couple of minutes left. I'm maybe keen to finish on any advice that you have for listeners who would like to go away and work on work on this uh, general general problem. I suppose there's so many different angles that one could take on it, and many different fields that one that one might go into. Yeah, are there any particularly like important, valuable fields that you think would be good for people to study on, or you know, that research that you think would be especially smashingly useful for for people to do? And maybe also, do you think that people should go and go and work in these companies currently and try to influence them from the inside, or you know, do we need more advocacy? <laughs> it's a bit of a mangled question there, but yeah, I mean, I, the seemingly cop out answer is unfortunately all of the above, because you know, just like you want as many conscious people inside of Exxon working on changing the investment portfolio to carbon capture and sequestration and removal and reducing the amount of new oiling, oil drilling sites in their long-term investments. We also want all those changes to happen inside of the companies as much as possible. So if you're going to work at one of the tech companies, 
ask them in their interview process about the business model misalignments, what they're doing to fundamentally change their business model so that they hear that. And that comes up at the sort of net reviews of their HR hiring meetings because they can see that there's a trend and long-term risk to them. You know, I think there's just work to be done on all these different areas. We need sociological research on, you know, I think almost simulations and agent-based modeling of what are alternative ways that social networks can fundamentally work. You know, is user-generated content and unchecked virality a sustainable model for a democracy? I think in the long run, a question we have to ask is how does a Western 21st century digital democracy outcompete these digital authoritarian closed systems? Because, you know, there's a question of is the future going to be run on Chinese digital authoritarian infrastructure or on a pluralistic democratic infrastructure? And I think we need to update even the language and concepts that we're holding on to as our guiding moral principles, because free speech in and of itself is not specific enough about the kind of information environment in which that speech goes viral. And you cannot distinguish between good faith and bad faith actors or uninformed actors or irresponsible actors or unaccountable actors and those who are genuinely aspiring to constructively make the information ecology net better. So, you know, some projects I recommend people check out, um, the Consilience Project by Daniel Schmachtenberger. You know, there's other social networks that I think are trying to tackle some of these issues. But I really just hope this talk inspires many more people to go into this field, participate, you know, as advocates, as, you know, potential employees putting pressure on them, and really have the EA community, the effective altruism community, see this as one of the invisible areas of existential risk. Because if a society cannot cohere, communicate, or coordinate with each other and agree on and act on its existential threats, the rest of the issues on the EA agenda, then we're not going to get anywhere. So I, I just see this as the issue that is underneath all issues because it really is gating our capacity to make reasonable progress on the rest of them. Yeah, my impression is that we need a lot more analysis of potential solutions and and, and what, what effects they, they might have. And it's, it's very hard to do. I mean, we were talking about it there for an hour. And we've just barely scratched the surface of like the analysis that one might do on these different policy or like different approaches that the companies could take, that the governments could take. And it cuts across like business and management and social psychology and like individual psychology and economics and political science and all of these questions, and public choice theory. Totally. I think it seems like we really need generalists who have an understanding of the big picture and can think through the implications of, I mean, it's very hard to predict even for the best of people, but you can think through what are the implications of moving things in, in one direction or another. I guess another one is we've had a couple of episodes on the on the show before about, I guess, like incentive design and how do you align the incentives of creators and users, I guess, especially when it comes to, to provision of information or of public goods. Uh, we've got, got the interview with Vitalik Buterin and, and, and Glenn Weil on that topic. It seems like it's very, it's, it's a difficult area to make progress in, but if you can change those fundamental incentives, then a lot of the other stuff kind of comes naturally because then you've, you've aligned the incentives of the people managing the system or providing the product and the, and the users. There's a lot more to say on this in, in future. Maybe just to end on a positive note, it's not all doom and gloom. There's downsides to some of these new technologies, but there's a lot of ways that they really are helping people make more sense of the world. Um, people have lots of crazy beliefs, but I, I don't know that, I think people probably were misinformed about lots of things back in the 70s and, and 80s as well. There's things like long form podcasts like this uh, didn't exist uh, very much 20 years ago. Wikipedia as well. People can use these technologies to make to make more sense of the world than they than they ever could before. If we can kind of keep these downsides manageable, are there any other things you're kind of optimistic about? Like not only ways that we can make sure that we don't understand the world less well than before, but ways that we could potentially flourish intellectually using using these services. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you've already pointed out many positive trends. I I want to make sure we don't discount that having cult-like beliefs and groupthink that gradually turns into a huge majority of one of the major political parties, uh, if you take QAnon, for example, is a really difficult and troubling trend. Because one of the things, again, about trust is once you lose it, it's very hard to get it back. But as you said, I think there's what has me inspired 
is for the first time feeling like, you know, tens of millions of people really now understand this problem and I think are aware that if we don't change it, it is existential. And I think what that's doing is creating a, while people might feel alone in how dark the vision that you and I may have painted for some of this this conversation, I think people then have the false impression that they're alone in feeling like we'll never fix it. But if the silent majority basically all feels the same way, you know, we joke internally at Center for Humane Technology that everyone is on team human, they may just not know it yet because it's sort of a omni win-win or omni lose-lose kind of game. In this world, it creates kind of a, you know, the downgrading of our critical thinking capacities and cohesion is not in the benefit of one group or another. It's really something that we should all be concerned about and all fix. And I, I will say that I wish I could turn my email and other inboxes inside out so that more people could see how deeply it's resonating in countries around the world. I mean, you know, people in Brazil saying this is how we got Bolsonaro. And now we're waking up and seeing that this is happening or people in Indonesia in responding to the film. So I think one thing that has me really inspired is that so many people are aware of this and seeing it as, you know, a thing that we fundamentally have to fix. I will say with Thanksgiving coming up and people going home to their families, one thing that you might want to do is suggest watching the film with family members who you can't talk to politically anymore. And actually, after seeing the film, do a reality swap in which you take your phones and you open up both to Facebook or TikTok, whatever you use, and then swap your phones and actually scroll through you know, someone's feed for about 10 minutes and ask, how would I be seeing the world if this was the world that I woke up to on a daily basis? And I think that the visceral felt sense of seeing someone else's different micro reality, I think, gives us a lot more empathy for how we reclaim some common ground. My guest today has been Tristan Harris. Thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Tristan. Thanks, Rob. Really great conversation. I hope people get a lot from it. I just thought that I would add that it would be fantastic to see someone, I guess perhaps uh, some of you listeners, uh, exploring some of the loose ends that we left in this conversation, such as whether it's really the case that conspiracy theories are having a larger impact now than they used to in the past. And if so, whether we have good reason to think that that's being driven by these algorithmic recommendation services, or perhaps it's due to something else. I think there may well be opportunities to do an awful lot of good uh, by working on some of these topics, such as how to prevent nonsense conspiracy theories uh, getting a lot of traction. Uh, But I guess if I was going to pursue that career path, I'd I'd really want to do some investigation to try to figure out what really is the state of the evidence on what impact Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and other services like that uh, are having on our political culture and our ability to flourish in our lives. Uh, Fortunately, if you want to do that, we have an especially extensive links section for this episode. That's because we did uh, quite a bit of background research for this episode to try to figure out uh, where we stand on these topics and come up with good questions for Tristan. If you go to the page associated with this episode on the 80,000 Hours website, uh, you can go through and find all of the best uh, resources, you know, papers, articles, blog posts, uh, sometimes tweets, and so on, uh, in order to try to get to grips with this topic as quickly as possible, and then perhaps run with that and do some of your own research. If you do do that, it would be fantastic to post what you learn on the Effective Altruism Forum uh, so you can share it with other people and they can benefit from what you've learned and perhaps use that information to decide if this is a problem that they'd like to work on in their own career. Uh, Speaking of the Effective Altruism community, if you haven't filled it out already, the 2020 Effective Altruism Survey is open for a little longer. Uh, And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, uh, the survey may well be aimed at you. If you'd like to make sure that that survey counts your opinions on what is most effective, your experiences with the Effective Altruism community, and what you've decided to work on, uh, click through the link in the show notes. If you found out about Effective Altruism because of this show, it's especially valuable for you to register that so that we can quantify our impact relative to other resources that are out there. This year's survey will close on the 10th of December, uh, so you've still got a couple of days left. 
The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.